Something went wrong, Seth. When you went through, something went wrong. No, not you. You're too chicken shit to be a member of the Dynamic Duo Club. Okay, then great. I'll find somebody else. Somebody who can keep up with me. Seth, you have to listen to me. You're afraid to dive into the plasma pool, aren't you? You're afraid to be destroyed and recreated, aren't you? I bet you think that you woke me up about the flesh, don't you? But you only know society's straight line about the flesh. You can't penetrate beyond society's sick, gray fear of the flesh. Drink deep or taste not the plasma spring. See what I'm saying? No, I'm not just talking about sex and penetration. I'm talking about penetration beyond the veil of the flesh. A deep, penetrating dive into the plasma pool. Accessing historical database. Year 2020. The tech giants become aware of the greatest threat to their corporatist domination. An obscure science and tech podcast becomes a major factor in a peaceful open source revolt against the military Silicon Valley industrial complex. The podcast, Sovereign Tech. Its host, Dr. Brian Sovereign. The tech giants tried to stop Sovereign Tech. They can't. Ooh, the man of tomorrow is here for you, baby. And, you know, I'm not alone, and I love it. Because <laughs> this week, this whole week of recording, I have not been alone much at all. Uh, but this time around, of course, if you listen to the most recent TIE Fighter Renegade, you knew that action with me and Rob. But this time around, I'm being joined by the love of my life, Woo! Ellen Sovereign. Woo! Yes. Yes. <laughs> Thank you for having me on. Yes. Oh, everybody loves it when you're on. Uh, and you well, you've been on. Well, okay, let's give people an update here. So you have officially, well, I don't know how you want to call it. Do you want to call it officially? You have graduated. Like you're, 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 you're done you're with, with, cause you know, you've been on quite a bit in the past uh, few months. And a lot of times we were discussing what it was like, uh, going to university, especially during, uh, you know, the COVID-19 situation. And now you are, you, you have graduated. Can we say that you are done? Yeah. I mean, I still have some trepidation about that term because I haven't received my diploma yet, ah. but my classes are over. I've finished finals. I've already calculated my grades and estimated that I've passed all of them. So I think I can safely say that I've graduated, which feels fucking awesome because <laughs> this has been the biggest dream 
of my life thus far, and I've finally achieved it. I mean, let's just, let's not even talk about employment yet. I mean, right, right. I just have the the diploma that says that I did the work, and I've, I I'm ready to go. I can <laughs> basically work at, at whatever I want to now. Sure. Yeah. Uh, so so it, just to remind everyone, I mean, it was only a couple of weeks ago that you were on, or well, no, it was longer than a couple of weeks ago. It was maybe a month ago that you were on last. Uh, you have graduated with like what? What would you say your title is right now? Uh, so I graduated with a bachelor's of science in chemical engineering, right? Uh, with a bioengineering option, but I also have an associate's degree in bioengineering. So it's like at this intersection of chemical and bioengineering. Yeah, and so you're the kind of person where we could call you a scientist or an engineer, and both would be applicable. Would you say that? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So would you? I mean, do you think, do you think like S4 or area 51 is going to be knocking on your door here anytime soon? You know, saying, oh, no. can we no, get no, no. the brightest and no, <laughs> <laughs> I'm on too many lists for that to happen. <laughs> I've made some uh, friends and enemies that I, I think publicly uh, yeah. are, are publicly acknowledged and uh, wouldn't look good on that sort of um like, like if that they were kind doing of application. A, yeah. a, a security check into my background. Too much the rebel. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I, I've gone against the grain with too many things. I mean, there's photos of me online holding signs that say, like, the war on drugs is a war on you. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love uh, it. Yeah. And in my associations with certain other organizations, like like I was a host on Free Talk Live mm-hmm, for a mm-hmm. few months. Uh, Sovereign Tech sponsor, by the way. Yep. Yes. <laughs> uh, so anyway, I, I just feel like I would not be applicable, like I would not be eligible to work at a high security clearance type, uh, job or facility. Well, you know, we, I don't want to say you're wrong and I love your answer. <laughs> <laughs> I think when we get into some subjects in this episode, uh, and area 51 is about to come up. Um, uh, might turn out that actually you you might be employable, uh, at least when I kind of share my opinions on the matter. But because as often happens, so we got two things. Here. Well, I'm employable to like corporations, but I don't know if the government would be. Interested. Oh, I know. Well, well, see that. But well, we'll talk about it. We'll get into that. But yes, of course you are, and I know that they're they're going to be knocking on this door to get you. I would get freaked out if they came knocking on this door to get me. <laughs> <laughs> that just sounds scary. Yeah, that's true. But, <laughs> and I but might anyway. have to do something about it. But regardless, um, so we have an episode chock full of things to talk about, but we are definitely going to discuss the strange. And as you, when you often, when you come on somehow, it just kind of happens. I don't really plan it. I sure as fuck don't plan when these stories are going to drop. Um, But we end up talking about, you know, aliens and all other kinds of wacky shit when you come on. Yeah, it's a weird bit of synchronicity, and I wonder if it has to do with our galactic mindset. Oh, <laughs> nice, nice, yeah. Uh, actually, I had somebody on, on Twitter, they they called me, or they were relating to me and, and saying, you know, like, this might be true for, for the everyday person, but not for galactic brains like us. And I was like, galactic yes. brains? I should open up the show saying, welcome, galactic brains. You know? <laughs> it almost sounds like if you were to, like, cut your skull open, it, it, there'd just be, like, a galaxy that pops out <laughs> I'm, I'm just, the visuals like you're looking inside yeah. a planetarium or 
<laughs> I love it. I love it. Well, anyway, uh, so a tradition that we have also, at least when you're on, is that we talk about the books that we're reading. Um, the books I've been reading, not terribly worth talking about, or at least not not at this stage. Uh, so I, you just I, read boring books. That's that's all you do, right? Yeah, I, I read horrible, horrible books. Uh, no, <laughs> <laughs> uh, it just they're not. I, I mentioned it before. Like I'm I'm rereading the the Anita Blake uh, series, and you know that's going to be actually a new book comes out in February. I mean, these are like 24, 25 books. Like there, there's so many of them and they really are only great when you get into like, when you get to like book 10 and I think, uh, I'm on like book nine now. And these are all vampire books. Yeah. Vampire werewolves, all that wacky stuff. I mean, it, it's a, it's really a great series. Uh, it's written by Laurel K. Hamilton. She started these back in the nineties. Uh, I first started reading them when they, there was this thing called the science fiction book club that you'd get a catalog for. And um, I remember how I got it. Like I started going to conventions and I must've like given my address to somebody there or whatever. And then suddenly I'm getting this catalog and you get like six hardcover books for $1. Whoa. I know. I know because like awesome deal. Fuck. Yeah, it was. I mean, I got some amazing books. Got like the, the star Wars encyclopedia. I got the Lord of the Rings trilogy and this gorgeous hardcover set, all this stuff. But those magazines at the time with the science fiction book club in the nineties, they, they very heavily promoted this character of Anita Blake. At the time, the book was brand new. It was, it was the first novel and uh, by Laurel K Hamilton. And it was sort of her first thing to do. And I was like, I mean, they just, they plastered it. It felt like, and so I picked it up and I loved it. I thought it was really, really wild. Uh, partly because, because they're sort of murder mystery novels, at least at first, um, it gave the author an excuse to explore some taboo things, um, especially sexually. And, and so like for me, I, I just, I ate it up. I, I thought this was, the stuff was amazing at the time and you just end up sticking with the series and the series gets more and more um, explicit and more and more extreme. And you just kind of, you just kind of ride with it and you run with it. And for me at the time, uh, it, those books definitely spoke to me in, in a very real way. Uh, so I've been rereading them cause it's just been so long. And now today, like I would have never done this years ago, but today you can listen to books, you know, at two, 2.5, three X or whatever. And so I can get through an Anita Blake book in a day, less than a day. Hell, I could do two a day if I had, you know, a little more freedom of, uh, of bandwidth in my own mind. Um, and so, yeah, otherwise I don't think I would bother to go through the entire series again, but now that's a really viable thing is that a lot of times you can read some of these books in the same amount of time it, it, it would take to watch a movie or two. And that makes it a worthwhile venture, I think, you know? And what do you really like about these books? Is it that they're so sexual? Uh, well, oh boy. So you asked that question. It's more than that. That's, that's certainly like. She really, the, the author, she really does get away with talking about like sexual matters that you just couldn't normally get away with in any other genre. Like what? Uh, just like kind of the wacky, like more mental stuff. Um, it, it, it's really hard to describe. It would take a long time, longer than I want to spend on it. Uh, but let's just say that, that she definitely explores like a, a more galactic mindset of sexuality. How about that? Does, does that work? Um, okay. Yeah. So, 
and and not only that, like she does, she's really clever with how she explains clever on the level of like the matrix with how she explains uh, things like magic and, you know, like vampires and werewolves and all this other stuff. Um, they're, they're just wildly fascinating. Very, it's a very unique series of novels, uh, but, but brilliantly done. And again, I've been, I've been reading them forever. I, I think I dropped off at like book 16. So there are some new ones that I need to catch up on. Uh, and finish reading, but I mean, I've been reading these for fuck, you know, over 20 years now, you know, <laughs> like, which is hard to believe, uh, that these books have been around, um, that long, you know, and that that series is still going. Uh, I don't know if we're ever going to, well, no, there are new authors who still do long running series like that, but I didn't plan on talking about these that much because I, I, I plan on the area 51 joke that I made earlier being a segue into what you're reading and what I have taken a brief respite in the Anita Blake uh, novels in reading what you read, which we don't always do this, but well, every once in a while. don't be upset because that's my job as the co-host is to pull this stuff out of you. Well, you do it like no one else. <laughs> <laughs> you always have. But um, well, anyway, the book you're reading. Now, this is interesting. You know. Well, I, I actually finished reading it already. Yeah. Um. So the book that I was reading, which, by the way, I did finish the book of Enki a while back. Oh, yeah. Um, we, we don't need to talk about that. I think we already talked. We about hit the high notes. Time. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so the book that I finished reading recently uh, is it was called Dreamland by Bob mm -hmm. Lazar. And it was it's essentially a book about uh, Bob Lazar working at S4, which is close to Area 51, and some of the things that he worked on. Now, I know that Bob Lazar has been kind of famous since the, the 80s. Yeah, uh, late 80s. When, when he first did a, an interview with George Knapp, and, and he kind of gained, a, he, he gained global fame mm -hmm. at that time. Uh, and I guess what has been brought on this resurgence of interest in Bob Lazar was a recent interview that he did. I think it was just a couple years ago with, um, Oh crap. What was his name? Joe Rogan. Joe Rogan. Yes. Yeah, I like to forget his name too. <laughs> <laughs> He's like the most famous podcaster though. For so whatever you, you, reason. You can't ignore him. You know? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, and I actually listened to this interview after I finished the book, and um, I thought it was really good, too. But we can get to that later. So anyway, mm -hmm. this book, Dreamland, uh, is called that because sometimes that's another name that is given to Area 51. I guess there's all sorts of names that people have called it. Yeah. Um, but uh, I, I thought it was really interesting. The book opened up with a foreword by George Knapp, who was the investigative journalist that broke the story. And he out of was, Las Vegas. He worked for like the local local CBS, right? I think out of Las Vegas, George Knapp. Yeah, continue. So anyway, he was saying uh, like how he got to know Bob and why he believes Bob's story, um, and he brought up some points about how other journalists have tried to debunk his story, mm -hmm. uh, but the only reason that they believe that he, that. Bob Lazar's story isn't believable is because they haven't done the full, complete, in-depth study of his history that George Knapp has. Mm -hmm. um, and it really does make sense after listening to the book why organizations would try to erase Bob's history. Um, yeah. 
So anyway, uh, Bob starts out by talking about his job at Los Alamos, working with the the particle collider there. Uh, then he ends up meeting a, a famous scientist who gives him a reference to work at S4. Um, and he ends up working there for just a few months, I believe. Uh, but he he's like going through the security clearance um, process, which includes like him being followed all the time, his phone being tapped. And this is happening. in so the book came out in 2019. What you're describing is happening in the 80s, right? Like yes. He's, doing, he's working in 1981. Um, or, whole, or like this started in 1981. Yeah. The whole yeah. story occurs in the 80s. Yeah. Um, so anyway, uh, technology was very different back then. Protocols were different. Security and all that. Sure. Um, certainly not the level of. Uh, I think we were just talking about this this morning. That the level of security that you would expect from a military installation now like post 9/11 is m- like orders of magnitude greater than what it was before then. Yeah, I mean when I was reading this and he's describing and and we'll cut to like what he says he was working on uh, cuz eventually they they show him, you know, they being you know whoever is in charge at S4 which is, you know, kind of attached to Area 51. Um like as I'm listening to this and he's I mean the security protocols the lack thereof really was the the thing I the hump I had to get over mentally when I'm when when I'm listening to this book because and I'm I'm, I'm almost finished with it I've got about an hour left as far as the audiobook goes um and it's what an eight hour book or something like yeah, that yeah it's not too long no it's not too long um but I mean you know I have ex- I mean I you know I was in the U.S. Army and I have experience with some of this protocol and what it takes to get into installations. I mean, I've never been to area 51 or anything like that, but you know, I have some understanding of what, how these installations work and his descriptions. I'm just listening to it. And I'm just like, I, I, I can't believe this. Like that that's all you had to do, you know, to get in there or, um, or even like the use of biometrics and a lot of other things. I'm like, no, no, like they, 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 I, I mean, th- those were the things again, that's not to debunk his story. It's just remarkable to me, you know, that there was a stage where things were, in my opinion, that lax, you know, because I think that most of us feel that when we think about like government installations, like an area 51 style thing that, oh, it's, you know, top secret. Nobody can talk about it. Blah, 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 blah. As to where for him, he's going home at night and having dinner. I mean, like, it's not a big deal at all. Ultimately. Right. Yeah. Um, interestingly, Back then, Area 51 wasn't even well known. Like, nobody knew about this place before Bob broke his story. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, nobody admitted to it. Right, right. Yeah. There were locals that had seen things that, um, you know, they, they tried to bring it up with reporters and whatnot, but people didn't really have evidence. Mm-hmm. There wasn't a strong story there. Um, but I, I think part of what's going on in the book is like, he can't t- tell you every detail, but also there, I think are a lot of security measures that are below the level of um, like perception. Mm-hmm. Uh, for example, there could be cameras that he doesn't see. There could be people lurking, like yeah. security lurking around that he doesn't see. Yeah. Um, and even while he's working in the S4 complex, uh, like there he's constantly being watched. He knows this. 
Like, right. because they know everything that he's done. And there are constantly security guards coming in and out. Um, yeah. So anyway. Well, it gets, let, let me bring in, interject a couple of things. So you have um, S4 itself. Nobody knows where this is. No one can like really prove that it exists. As it's like I in the middle it. of the desert. They made the entrance look like a natural rock formation. Right. So it would be difficult for anyone to find it. Right. It's not like Area 51 where, yeah, even before it was admitted to, you know, by the government that it actually even fucking exists. People knew there was something there yes. for, for varying reasons. I mean, you have um, like the the airline that they're the red and white planes. And I know mm-hmm. he mentions them briefly, but that, that come out of Las Vegas out of the, the, what is it? The Janet fleet or whatever they call yeah, it. Yeah. Um, and it's like a 45 minute flight from there to uh, the, the area 51. Right. Right. Uh, so yeah. So, I mean, people know about that and that, that that's kind of out there now, you know, a lot of people forget, and I've brought this up before on the show, the first time, that I know of, and this isn't mentioned in the book at all. In fact, it never gets mentioned by anybody, which I always find kind of strange. The first time that I know of that Area 51 was ever admitted to exist was like in 1992 or 93, and it was on the Montel Williams show. And he drove up to it in a Humvee. Now, Montel Williams is, I mean, kind of CIA slash, well, I mean, there's debate about what his history and intelligence was, but uh, you know, he was just a talk show host in the nineties, like Maury Povich and all these other cats. And, uh, but he drove right up to it and everything. And, and, and that was, and they, and he got the letter and he read it on the air. I was a little kid watching this and go, Whoa, what? That's real. You know, now Bob Lazar's big interview was in 89. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess he talked about area 51 during that, but again, it was not admitted to exist until just a few years later after that. And of all things, fucking Montel Williams, you know? Right. <laughs> so that's something to keep in mind. The other thing that that I think is interesting, I want to bring up fast, is that later on, he starts to get followed around because he's going through the application process of right. getting to work for S4 slash Area 51. They're still trying to approve his clearance. Right. And and so him and his, his wife at the time, they are, you know, they're being watched. Uh, like these people are following him. You know, what's funny is today, like, I know that was common practice even 15 years ago, that the idea of like following people, that's got to be like non-existent today. You, there's no need for you to have to follow anyone. You can just, yeah, you could just do it all digitally right over their smartphone. Like you can hear everything they say, you know, exactly where they are. I mean, like there's no, that that's got it. It's just funny to read about that and think about it. It's like, wow, we used to think that that was like really scary when now that's not necessary at all. You know, and and all because people voluntarily hand over, you know, the very information that you would get followed about, uh, which I, I, I found I, it's just funny to listen to this, you know, and to, to kind of picture the 80s like that. He does do an excellent job of describing everything that's going on, uh, which lends some credibility to his to his story. Um, but anyway, uh, l- let's continue as far as Area 51 goes or I mean, as far as. He eventually, because he's working on this project, right? He's working on a propulsion system and he's trying to revert there. He's tasked with reverse engineering it. Have I got this right? Yeah. So his specialty, ever since he was young, his hobbies included propulsion systems, rockets, mm-hmm. things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's one of the ways that he was able to get this job. He actually put a rocket engine in his car yeah. and drove it around town. And it's he like was on the front, front page of the newspaper. 
Uh, so anyway, he he was very skilled in propulsion systems, mm-hmm. so, and that's how he was able to get this this job. There was apparently an opening at S four uh, for a propulsion specialist. So that's what he went in to study. Um, so he goes through all of this paperwork, all of the security clearance stuff. Uh, he finally shows up on the job, and his his lab partner, whose name I guess is Barry, um, shows him the propulsion system that they're going to be working on. And this thing is, well, it's not of this world. From what he can tell, there is no known technology on this planet that could do what he saw that thing do. Mm-hmm. And basically what it did was it created a gravity or anti-gravity field. Right. Like he tossed a ball at it or something and it just shot up into the air. Yeah. He tried reaching out and touching it with his hand and it was repelled. Mm-hmm. Um, and the briefings that he was reading about this project, they said all sorts of crazy things that like he didn't even believe. He Like some of this stuff he said could have been misinformation to... Uh, possibly like misdirect him. Like if he leaked the story, they would know where it came from because it would include these false facts. Yep. Um, Or, or it could be real uh, or, you know, it could just be altered truth. Like maybe instead of coming from Zeta Reticuli, these aliens were actually like, I don't know, living somewhere in the solar system and and they weren't actually aliens, but like ancient humans, but, but there's no way to know. Mm-hmm. Um, that's just the story he was told. And I love that in this book, all he will talk about is what he's actually seen and worked on. He's not putting forward any theories of any kind. Yeah. So uh, this is another thing I really liked about it. Uh, now he does eventually get to see the, the craft as it were that, that this <laughs> well, engine let's just comes get from. right to it. Yeah. Well, but- eventually he, he convinces his liaison to allow them to see the craft. Yeah. And he does the saying, well, I need to know the bigger picture to really understand the propulsion system. So what is this? Where did this come from? What yeah, is this? Yeah. And he does end up seeing it. Um, I mean, I want to, I want to kind of back up a little bit. He does, because there's two points. One is that he does claim to see photographs of non-human intelligences. Like he, he claims to see photographs basically of aliens and they're strange, like they're, they, they get, they're cut open and they don't really have organs. They just kind of have this weird fleshy central tissue mass, uh, inside, um, you know, they're not human. And he, he sort of, so far from what I've read, unless he talks about it more in the last hour, he just mentions it and then moves on. Okay. Yeah. Because they never come up again in right. his work. Right. So that's interesting and we'll, we'll definitely come back to that too. But one of the things that I really like about this book, because one of the things I hate about most alien books, most extra UFO books and extraterrestrial books is that 90% of them sell you a philosophy. Like the, it, it'll somewhere in the book, they'll start saying we need to have peace on earth. We need to be ready for, you know, for these aliens. And, and they are trying to tell us how to live and, somebody espouses some kind of weird thought leadership, quasi thought leadership piece. And it drives me up the fucking wall uh, for a lot of reasons. Um, But he's not doing that at all. Um, 
Yeah, no, one of the things that makes me like Bob Lazar and actually mm-hmm. feel that his story is believable is that he speaks in a very technical scientific language. Mm-hmm. He knows what he's talking about. He's very intelligent, but he's not he, yeah, he's he's not a sociopath or megalomaniac. Mm-hmm. There's no red flags of any kind. He's just telling you what he worked on. Right. That's it. Right. He's not trying to change the world. He just yes. thinks that people should know about this. Yes, you hit at it exactly. And that's that's what I like about it. He is not trying to change the world because most of these UFOologists and other people, they go to stupid lengths, you know, and they're and it's like they're trying to change the world. Um and, and it just again drives me nuts. Anyway, so he does end up seeing the craft. Yeah, which initially was a big problem because, and, and this is a frustration he voices several times throughout the book, mm-hmm. uh, when when the government or the military have a secret technology that they don't want anyone else to know about, uh, and they're, they're trying to uh, experiment on it and figure out how it works, they compartmentalize the department so much and keep people from uh, talking to each other across departments. Like they did with the Manhattan Project. Right, but it hinders the progress of discovery so much that they might as well shoot themselves in the foot. Yeah, I understand. I, I can hear that. And I mean, to be clear, this is exactly how Silicon Valley operates as well. Like the tech giants, same deal. You you go and ask them, hey, are you working on this? Are you working on that? And they'll always say, no, I think that's the guy down the hall. Like, you know, they there is this separate, this compartmentalization, the separation of what everybody's working on. And the idea would be so that they, they don't see the big picture. Now, I mean, the scary part with that, and of course, certainly this is what people hindsight 2020 looking back on the Manhattan project is, is that, yeah, you don't want people to know what you're building because it's something that terrible, you know, and, and if they knew they'd stop, you know, they'd quit. So, uh, anyway, yeah, so there's this compartmentalization going on. Uh, I guess if there's an S4, maybe that suggests that there's an S1, S2, and S3 where right. people are working on things. What but, does that even mean? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but uh, anyway, so he's he makes the argument that, like, I can't understand this propulsion system completely mm-hmm. unless I see how it fits into the larger system. Uh, so he is able to go and see the craft and, and be inside of it. Mm-hmm. Um, interestingly, he says that it looks like it was made for beings who are like three feet tall yeah. because it's very cramped inside for, for an average human being. Right. Um, and also uh, he, he made some observations about how it was made. Like it looked like it was sculpted out of wax and then heated so that like all of the sharp angles were, were actually, uh, curved. There, there were no sharp angles at all. It was all curvature. Everything had a radius of some kind. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he, he just thought that was beyond humans' abilities to manufacture something like that. Uh, he couldn't tell if it was made out of metal or ceramic or what. Um, so this is all really fascinating to me, and I, like, I'm kind of blown away because I'm not a. While I feel that it is possible that. UFOs exist. Mm-hmm. I feel like it's much more likely that the government does have some sort of advanced non-human technology that they're keeping secret from the public mm-hmm. or from other countries for that matter. Yeah. You're a skeptic. I mean, you're not somebody who just, uh, I'm an open-minded skeptic. Yeah, You are skeptic. open-minded. Absolutely. Yes. <laughs> but you're just, you're, you're, you're somebody who really needs some good proof. Uh, yeah. 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 
And like in this book, the only proof that Bob offers is his word. But there's right. evidence that he worked at S4. There's evidence that he worked uh, at Los Alamos. You know, he has no reason to lie about this stuff. He sounds very professional. Um, and interestingly, even at the end of the book, he says that he wishes that he never said anything because it was such a priceless opportunity to work with that cutting edge technology. Right. Yeah. So now, I mean, there's claims around this guy that kind of go both ways. Like there's people who say, no, actually a lot of his employers said he never worked there. Um, and then there's like, he was, you know, well, he would claim that these were, uh, I'm not sure what the, what the term I, I, I want to use, but that they were a farce. Uh, he had an FBI raid on his, like his home and place of business. His claim is, is that it had to do with, uh, they were trying to steal element 115 back, which he had a sample of, which right is something related to the craft that he was supposedly working on or that he was reverse engineering. Um, and I mean, there's lots of interesting little theories and factoids that do kind of get late, like scientific theories that do get laid out in the book that I found to be like the idea that, that Zeta Reticuli is what, well, I mean, it's a binary star system, right? Right. So the gravity there would be much greater. So a stable element 115 could potentially have formed naturally there. Right. Right. Like humans have created an isotope of element 115, actually multiple, but they're all unstable and they decay within like a few thousandths of a second or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, supposedly there's an isotope that is stable and like we found that this can be true. Mm -hmm. It's just that we can't create it because that does require so much force to make a giant nuclei like that. Right. But in a star system like Zeta Reticuli, it could be natural. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, you know, the, and, and so there's a claim that, well, what that raid was really about was that, but then, you know, when you do a FOIA request, the raid was actually about a murder case. Um, he was, he was convicted for being, uh, for being part of a prostitution ring, which in Las Vegas, what a shock. Uh, but then apparently a lot of those charges got dropped. Um, I mean, you know, again, he, cl he would easily claim, and of course people around him would easily claim, well, this is the government trying to like shut him down and keep him from talking about these sorts of things. Uh, there is a documentary. We haven't watched this yet, um, but there, there is a documentary that was made a couple of years ago in 2018, um, about, you know, Bob Lazar and, and everything around area 51, um, and so on. Uh, I mean, I read the book. And it's intriguing other than the very brief mention of these, I guess what could be grays. Um, <laughs> I mean, we're guessing, you know, cause like the, like the three foot tall people. Yeah. Uh, well, he didn't say anything about the way that they looked. No, not really. Just what, how they got cut open, you know, yeah. and that they were missing limbs. Um, other than that, like, here's the thing I could, I could very easily believe that he saw what he saw and worked on what he worked on. Uh, I could believe that S4 is a thing that exists. Okay. Um, but then once you start saying aliens, I, I kind of check out because it's, it's like, I mean, I get why people go there because he had a great, like he had a great um, analogy of the craft in, in this. 
where he said that imagine like a motorcycle, you know, just appearing to people a few hundred years ago on the Oregon trail. Yeah. On the Oregon trail. <laughs> right. And like, yeah, maybe eventually they'd figure out how it could uh, help them haul some, you know, some grains or something. I don't they know, might but, get it started and be yeah. able to drive it around eventually, but they'd never be able to refuel it. Right. Right. They have no. Yeah, exactly. Or they, to repair it. Yeah. So and, and that's interesting, you know, and and I think you were saying I have not I've yet to listen to the Joe Rogan interview that he did. Um, but on that, was there a claim that one of the craft was something that they found that or like that they. Yeah. So because like one claim is, is that it's it's the Roswell craft. But then there's multiple craft, apparently, and one of them is one that they dug up, as in, it, like, it's it's it been here for hundreds of years. part of an years. archaeological expedition. Exactly. Tell me more. Well, he just mentioned that. He said that mm-hmm. he heard this from his lab partner, that one of them was ancient. Right. Uh, but they do have multiple. And, like, some of, he said one of them looked like it had a hole in it, as if it had been shot down or something. Uh-huh. So I, I don't know. And like, he doesn't know either. The The history of these craft is mysterious. They won't tell him how long they've had these things or how long they've been trying to reverse engineer it. Mm-hmm. Uh, like the only thing he knows about the history of this project is that the person who worked there before him died because they tried to cut open the reactor that he was working on. Right. And he was actually terrified of the power that was inside of this thing. Yeah. The the whole time he was working on it. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that's, see, you know, if you want to tell me that there was some previous civilization on earth that might've like developed this stuff or that, that had some kind of advanced technology in the, and whatever modern governments happen to find it and things like that, that's infinitely more believable. I would argue a lot easier to try and prove. Um, but instead people just fucking run to aliens, you know, or they attach it to some alien theory instead of trying to, you know, go where the evidence best suggests, you know, and, and Occam's razor gets, you know, thrown out, uh, you know, thrown out the door and yeah, I just, I, you lose me when, or not you, but I mean, people lose me when they start saying, and so it came from Zeta Reticuli. Uh, wait what (laughs) yeah like how they got that information is totally left in the dark we don't know Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, but what what we do know is that the way that he describes how the craft works it generates a a gravity field around itself um, which allows it to move in ways that traditional physics say our airplanes cannot move right um you know, like making right angle turns at hundreds of miles an hour. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's interesting that he even says that space and time are essentially the same thing and, and gravity. Yeah. So if you can bend gravity, you bend time. Right. And and there are mysteri- mysterious things about the way this operates. Like apparently when he saw a test flight being performed, he also saw that there's somebody with a, a radio, like a regular radio, talking to the craft. Okay. Which wasn't supposed to be possible because, like, if you're sending radio waves through a gravitational field of that strength... They wouldn't be getting through. Right. Yeah. But somehow they were. And there's a lot of strange things about this. But anyway, like, the, the speed at which these craft could move mm-hmm. suggests that it is possible for faster than light or close to light speed travel. So 
the story of this thing coming from Zeta Reticuli, there's a little more credence lent to it in that respect. Like mm-hmm. in, in the fact that like if this technology exists, then it could be possible. Yeah, uh, because, you know, once you start like bending light, you know, and like affecting gravity, you know, a lot of the the concerns around how long does it take? You know, I mean, all bets are off at that point. Yeah. Basically. And you don't have to worry about G forces or anything. Right. right. Um, yeah. So, you know, after reading and, and folks, this is leading somewhere because <laughs> there was a story that dropped a couple weeks ago. And this is what I mean. These are the things you can't plan because you started reading this book before the story dropped. Uh, that comes from someone who was uh, heavily involved with the Israeli space program. Um, and we'll get into that in a minute. Okay. Uh, again, Sovereign Tech usually <laughs> is not a show about this sort of thing. We're not but, saying aliens. Aliens yeah, are real. Yeah, yeah, they're no, here. Yeah, right. Yeah, that's we're not going there. But but this is this is stuff that's that's relevant. And I think there are alternatives that don't get discussed or brought up enough that I think are worthwhile for us to bring up. Uh, that can that can kind of rarely or more uniquely happen here. Um, but so well anyway, let, let me ask you this, Ellen. Let, let let's just go here. Did this book like convince you? What did this book convince you of? I I don't want to. I mean, I could like lay out. You know, did it convince you of aliens? Did it do this? I don't want to put it that way. I just want to ask the broader question: What did it convince you of? Well, it, it reinforced this idea that I've had for a while that I don't want to work for the government. Yeah, right on. <laughs> After hearing about that experience, it just sounds too stressful and I'm not going to deal with it. Um, it convinced me that, yes, definitely the U.S. government has secrets that I think are beyond the comprehension of most people, even most scientists. Mm-hmm. Um and that's why they've been able to hide it so well for so long, because these stories get out and people just don't believe it because they can't. Um, it, it's like the best, most well-hidden secret. Because it, once you start talking about technology that is like an era ahead of our own, mm-hmm. it just seems too unreal and people aren't able to believe it. Like, imagine if you went to the Oregon Trail and you told people, like, someday you'll be able to pull lever on the handle of a bike and just speed off. <laughs> no horses needed. Right. <laughs> They'd be like, what are you talking about? Yeah, yeah, and that, that'd be magic. Yeah, I right. understand. Yeah, um, but I. other than that, I don't know that it really convinced me. Like, I'm not going to say it convinced me that aliens are here. Mm-hmm. Um. I'm not going to say that it convinced me of really anything else because this is all, it's a first-hand account, which gives it more credence than, say, a second or third-hand account. Right. But it's also, I mean, obviously everybody has a faulty memory. There are some details that might differ over time from the truth. Mm-hmm. Um I believe that the essential story that he told is true about the secret technology. Um, yeah, I just, I, I don't want to say anything beyond that. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Yeah. I mean this, so, you know, I hold the statement and, or I, I hold the, the idea and it's a statement that I've made many times on the show over the years um, that like I'm open to the U S government having wildly advanced aircraft that we don't know about, uh, 
and I've brought up historical examples. I mean, so I'm bringing up things that we know exist. And that is, you know, we didn't know about the SR-71 spy plane until like almost 15, 20 years after uh, that, that it was initially used. We didn't know about the F-117 stealth fighter until around the same time frame after it had already been developed and used. You know, like, like there are, there are craft that get developed that, you know, people might say, Ooh, I saw this weird thing. And I mean, especially when you look at the SR-71 or the, you know, F-117, those are wild looking craft. I mean, they look very different than any other airplane. I mean, they still have the basic principles of an airplane, but they look wildly different than anything else out there. And they were a very well kept secret for a good long while. You know, I mean, if you can keep a secret like that for a decade, granted it wasn't the social media age or anything, you're doing pretty good. And so, you know, the idea that the government probably has incredibly advanced aircraft is not outrageous at all. You know, like, I mean, we have historical examples where that was, you know, where, where that was true. Um, and some of them, you know, are still kind of secret, even if we do kind of know what they are. Like I, me, uh, I, I think I know exactly what's at Area 51. And it's a, it's a Boeing, it's, it's a 737 called the Rat 55. And it's, as far as what exactly it does, we know it's used to test varying stealth technologies. Uh, and it's been upgraded and reused for, for a very long time. Fuck. I, I, I'm almost comfortable. I could almost claim that I've seen the thing, but anyway, we'll, we'll, we'll kind of leave it at that. I mean, people have seen it. You have, there's pictures of it. It's not like it's, it's, you know, it's not privileged information in any way, shape or form. Uh, but point being is that yes, like there are these kinds of things, but the idea that the government like somehow has technology that's like wildly advanced, even that I, I, I kind of debate a bit. Like I, I wonder about, you know, like the computers that we have as just, you know, private individuals, uh, the government doesn't have computers that are not, not in the same, not that are, that are the same size. Like their laptops are the same laptops that we use. You know, they have supercomputers, sure, that are very, very powerful. Um, but, you know, this whole idea that's been going on for a while where, oh, the government has this wildly advanced technology. Not really. But that's assuming that they are using human technology mm -hmm. and just building upon that mm -hmm. instead of finding something that is so advanced that no human on this planet can even begin to understand, let alone replicate it. Mm -hmm. The point, I think what's important about this gravity generator is that they only have like a handful. Right. Because they've found them. They don't have any methods or any means of replicating these things. It's or not perhaps like, even using them. Right. And it, to be able to build up our existing technology mm. to get to that level, they would have to know what path to follow, like what discoveries need to be made in order to get there. Mm -hmm. But like there's just too much space between our technology and that technology. There's no way to to recreate it mm -hmm. or even to mimic it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, like, they might have found it and have it, but mm -hmm. they, they can't do anything with it except for, like, tinker with it. Well, I think that's an interesting point for you to bring up in and of itself, you know? I, I mean, even that is a is a very different perspective 
than what most people who buy into, say, the Roswell story or some other thing, because the rest, you know, everybody else would be saying, oh, yeah, the government's using this stuff all day long. You know, how are they going to use it? I mean, like they might take one of these nine generators and put it in a, a craft and fly it around. But like it's too precious. It's a prized possession. Mm -hmm. They're not going to let that thing fall into somebody else's hands. They're not going to let anything happen to this. They're going to keep it safe where they can keep their eyes on it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I really am genuinely I, I really am open to that that sort of thing exists. Uh, it'd be dynamite if we had one other person that could reiterate what Bob Lazar or, you know, that could bolster what Bob Lazar, you know, had said. Um, because it's tough to just take the word of one guy, you know? Yeah. Well, uh, in, in the interview that he did with Joe Rogan, he actually made a good point. Like he said, he thought that his lab partner was going to come out after him, mm -hmm. but he was hassled so much after mm -hmm. he came out. Um, you know, like he had his life threatened multiple times. Uh, his, like his birth certificate just disappeared. Wow. Um, yeah. Which his family was terrified about that. You know, his, his employment history was disappearing. His diploma was disappearing. Like, uh, he, he was a non-person essentially after this. So I think that scared a lot of people out of coming out and speaking up about what they had worked on. Yeah. You know, and, and that's something that's, that's worthwhile bringing up as well is that this is, I mean, that this is something that is in the purview of government capability today is that they can effectively erase you. They don't have to kill you. Like, like they can just erase that you ever existed today more so because everything's all digital records and, you know, computers absolutely lie. They lie, they lie 24 seven. Uh, and so I, yeah, that, and that that makes this all the harder, right? Because, you know, again, you have people coming out and saying, well, actually, no, Bob Lazar didn't work here, didn't work, blah, 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 you know. Uh, it's easy to erase that shit. You know, I mean, hell, it's it, it, even before, you know, digital records, um, even the government, you know, it, not just the government had that ability. I mean, like Scientologists were trying forever to make shit disappear and they actually did a pretty good job of it, which is why the FBI finally stepped in and said, okay, you guys have to stop this shit, you know? Uh, so, you know, these are, these are plausible things to happen and, and it's very tough to prove or disprove when someone says, Hey, I worked here, you know, especially if you're some, you know, part of some black project, you know, black ops project or something along those lines or black site project. Uh, it's very difficult to prove or disprove because absolutely. Yes you know, the government will just erase the shit. Uh, yeah, but I definitely hear what you're saying. It is hard to take the word of one guy, especially since nobody followed him. Mm -hmm. Nobody has told the same story that he has. Right. And I don't think any other, uh, like, UFO alien um, person who's, like, revealing the secret truth. Mm -hmm. uh, no, there's no informer out there that has the credibility, I think, that Bob Lazar does or that at least sounds sane and doesn't sound schizophrenic. Well, we'll see if that's true because, <laughs> <laughs> because yeah, actually the story that we have lined up yeah. touches on that. Yeah. Actually hints at, well, somebody who is credentialed and who made some pretty wild claims. Um, and I, and I, you want to get into that? Sure. Let's, let's do it. Right. I don't have anything else to talk about. Uh, for book club. Actually, next time I'm on, I'll talk about the book that I'm listening to now, which is the happiness hypothesis. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. The, okay, this this is what you've shared with me so far. Um, 
this is going to be an interesting, you know, conversation, but we'll, we'll do that on, on next time. But let's, all right, let's take a break. And then we're, we'll come back and we're going to talk about the Galactic Federation. Ooh, what is that? You'll find out. Be back with more. Hey, is Sovereign Tech not enough for you? Well, let me tell you about something you'll never get enough of. No, no, I mean it. We're talking about a radio show and podcast that goes all night long, seven nights a week, three hours a night, 365 days a year, and has been going since the early aughts, baby. I am talking about none other than Free Talk Live. It's the show you control. That's right. It's an open phones call-in show that is ready for you. And if you're worried that your voice isn't going to get heard, don't be. We are talking about the only libertarian radio show stateside. And not only that, it's also the number 26 talk show in the United States. Start listening now and go ahead and hit that massive back catalog at freetalklive.com. The Golden Stallion guarantees a good time. And you might even find some episodes with me on them when you do. That's freetalklive.com. And we thank them for sponsoring Sovereign Tech. Let's get back to the show. The main story. And we are back for some more Sovereign Tech. And uh, our main story, we really, we have like two main stories here. Um, one that has nothing to do with aliens, but might actually be relevant to space travel. Uh, you know, I, I think it could go there. Uh, or might be of interest in that vein, but but we'll we'll get into that after this. But this plays off directly with the conversation we were having around um, Bob Lazar, and this story dropped on December tenth, two thousand twenty. So just a few days ago, um, as of this recording. And it's well, I'll read the headline. It's from the Jerusalem Post, and. It's former Israeli space security chief says aliens exist, humanity not ready. Now here's here's the underline here. This quote-unquote galactic federation has supposedly been in contact with Israel and the U.S. for years, but are keeping themselves a secret to prevent hysteria until humanity is ready. Ellen, at first blush, what do you think about that headline? I think it's very interesting that these <laughs> aliens chose to make contact with Israel and the U.S. That's, and no one else. That's very interesting. Because, you know, from the sky, you can't really tell where the borders are. Yeah. So in Israel, it's a very small place. Very small. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I, I just... I don't understand that. Did they not make contact with any other civilizations? Were they looking for their old spaceport? Uh, Book of Enki? Oh, no. <laughs> maybe. Maybe. But how did the U.S. become involved? Is it because the U.S. is like the sugar daddy of Israel or something? <laughs> wow. Wow. I'd just like to say that I'm Jewish. And <laughs> it's not, I mean, it's not unfair. I mean, we... You know, the, the United States does send Israel millions of dollars in, in financial aid, which is kind of weird, among other things. But regardless, uh, let's let's read a bit of the story, shall we? So <laughs> has the state of Israel made contact with aliens? According to retired Israeli officer and current professor uh, Haim Bashid, the answer is yes. 
but this has been kept a secret because quote, humanity isn't ready end quote speaking in an interview to, and this is terrible. I am Jewish and I, and some of the, some of the stuff I don't always read, right. Uh, an interview with, with Yedot Aaron, <laughs> forget it. Ashid, who served as the head of Israel's space program for nearly 30 years and is a three-time recipient of the Israeli Secure, Israel Security Award, explained that Israel and the U.S. have been dealing have both been dealing with aliens for years, and this by no means refers to immigrants. With Ashid clarifying the existence of a galactic federation. The 87-year-old former head of the Defense Ministry Space Division gave further descriptions about exactly what sort of agreements have been made between the aliens and the U.S., uh, which ostensibly have been made because they wish to research and understand, quote, the fabric of the universe, end quote. This cooperation includes a secret underground base on Mars where there are American and alien representatives. If true, this would coincide with U.S. President Donald Trump's creation of the Space Force as the fifth branch of the U.S. Armed Forces, though it is unclear how long this sort of relationship, uh, if any, has been going on between the U.S. and its reported extraterrestrial allies. Okay, I want to stop for a second on this. The Space Force. Did you hear about what they call them? What did they call them? They're, you know, the Guardians? Yeah, they're called Guardians. So dumb. <laughs> There's so many things I want to say about this. I mean, Donald Trump is the last person that I feel like a super intelligent race would want to have contact with. Right. Secondly, if Donald Trump did know about aliens, he like that's the only secret besides Stormy Daniels that he's <laughs> kept. <laughs> Woo. What does Stormy know about the aliens? <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> she did make that one. No, anyway, never mind. <laughs> I'm kidding. I, I have never watched Stormy Daniels movie. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, uh, and like, this is something that other people have said too. I'm not the first to say this. It just like, it, it seems like it would be very hard for him to keep that secret about aliens. Well, uh, but in like, is, is America the, the foremost uh, leader in like technology in the world? What about Russia? Like, well, you I, raise... I guess I, I'm not sure why they chose America and Israel. Yeah. So, okay. So you raise an interesting point um, and which can bring in other conspiracy theories as it were. And I don't use that term necessarily pejoratively, at least certainly not all the time, because there are plenty of conspiracies that have ended up being absolutely true. Uh, and I... I have plenty of what could be called conspiracy theories in my own mind that I also think, you know, strong evidence stands for to where you wouldn't even call them theories, but they're still conspiracies. So I, I don't like that term to be to necessarily be a pejorative. Uh, in fact, I'll probably bring one up here in a few minutes, but regardless, um, alternative three, which what is this? I don't want to spend a ton of time describing it. Basically alternative three is there's a book and there was an episode of a British, a totally straight British documentary show from the seventies called science report that they were getting canceled and they did one final episode. Uh, and like it was on, on like April fool's day that it ended up getting released. They did one final episode. And in this episode, they claimed to be exposing a conspiracy where the United States and Russia were building a base on Mars that they went to Mars. They found something on Mars and like the, the kind of the tape that they got stops there. Now the rub is, is that 
like there's a brain drain going on during this episode of science report where like all these scientists are disappearing and they've been following the story for however long, blah, blah, blah. Everybody playing the scientists, they're actors and they're actors that you can see in other movies, you know, they're actors. And so everybody says, eh, it's just an April fool's joke. But what a lot of people think is that it's actually plausible deniability that it was lit, that that was really going on in that this joking episode of science report was made to be able to point at, you know, to say, Oh, you, you know, to, 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 to debunk the theorists, right. To say, Oh, you guys just watched that episode of science report. Well, it's an April fool's day joke. It's not real. Right. Um, but the argument goes is that yes, in the sixties in 1969, Russia and the U S did build a, a effectively an underground base on Mars, which is exactly what Ashid is saying here. Now, it's important to keep in mind that, you know, talk about somebody who's credentialed. This is a guy whose credentials are literally unquestionable. He's got dementia. He's an old guy. (laughs) He's 87. Yeah, Yeah. right. Yeah, you can go there. Yeah. Uh, And I'm sure plenty of people are, you know, making that kind of claim. But now, as far as like Trump knowing about this and keeping it a secret here, let me keep reading here. But Ashid insists that Trump is aware of them. And that he was, quote, on the verge, end quote, of disclosing their existence. However, the Galactic Federation reportedly stopped him from doing so, saying they wished to prevent mass hysteria since they felt humanity needed to, quote, evolve and reach a stage where we will understand what space and spaceships are, end quote. Wait, 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 wait. Mm -hmm. So humans are not ready now, but they will be ready when they understand space and spaceships. Now, what does that mean? What do that you think that Bob means? Lazar was right, and he has to figure it out how that gravity drive worked. But no, <laughs> go ahead. What do you got? No, I'm asking you. What do you think that means? That we need to understand what space and spaceships are. Now, coming from an advanced alien species, mm-hmm. what could they mean when they say that to us? I mean, that's me giving a, like, first off, I'm not saying I believe a sheet that any of this is, is true. In fact, I don't believe that there's like a galactic federation. But so I'm, I'm kind of letting that out of the bag. But if I were to believe this, uh, <laughs> <laughs> what, uh, understand what space and spaceships are. Um, I think that that has something very much to do with higher dimensions of existence. And, and I think that has a lot to do with a controlling, a, a, a honing, a harnessing, of one's thought and, and, and consciousness, um, to a degree that either, you know, none of us, or at least most of us, you know, just, just like can't rock, like, or don't understand at this point in time. Um, that's pretty far out. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) I almost, (laughs) this is like the Star Trek episode with the, the time traveler. Oh, oh, with the traveler, the traveler, yeah, like where where no one has gone before. Yes, from Tau Alpha C. Yeah, the idea that space, time, and thought are not the separate things that we believe them to be. The next generation, by the way. You know, let let's sidebar a little bit. We're having fun here. It it it's calendar, folks. It's <laughs> Merry calendar. Merry calendar, by the way. <laughs> um, it's December twenty fifth. So when this is getting released, uh. Star Trek The Next Generation. So we've been, you and I have been re-watching this. This has been our, din- our dinner television. The only time we really watch television yeah. at all. Um, we've been re-watching this. 
season one. Now I've, I've, this is something actually over the past two, three years, this is kind of a rolling thesis and train of thought that I've been laying out in the varying shows that I do, but also in sovereign tech, uh, that most people don't understand. I mean, when, you know, Star Trek, I think most people, and, and you're a Star Trek fan, Ellen, I mean, you're a hardcore fan. Oh, this uh, is news to me. Well, you are. Come on. <laughs> You've watched it all. I mean, yeah, and, and you love it. I do love it. I even might have a few costumes. Oh, I was just going to bring those up. <laughs> You've worn them in the hotel rooms and things have got, well, anyway, sorry, we don't need to go there, but <laughs> uh, so, you know, I think most people have the perspective that, and, and let me know if you think this is wrong, that like Gene Roddenberry, that, that everything you see in Star Trek is all Gene Roddenberry's brainchild. Minus Discovery and all that new fan fiction horseshit. Uh, but, you know, from the original series, kind of to around Enterprise, I mean, we know Gene Roddenberry died, you know, before like even Deep Space Nine hit the airwaves. But but I think most people think that a lot of that is all like this is all Gene Roddenberry's vision that kind of kept going forward, at least until 2005. OK, um, that's not true. Like that, that's not true at all. Uh, in fact, you read the book astonishing as well. Didn't you? Yes. Uh, a tremendous book, uh, or, or wait, wait, astounding, right? Astounding. Yes. Astounding. Yeah. That's it. So this is an amazing book, but that talks about like Gene Roddenberry's mission and what he was doing and all this, blah, blah, blah. It's a very interesting read. Anyway, bottom line, what most people don't realize is that Gene Roddenberry's involvement in Star Trek wholly consists of season, uh, season one and two of the original series. He was not around for season three star Trek, the motion picture. He was certainly, in fact, that's probably the most he was in control of his baby in control of star Trek. And then season one and a chunk of season two. Uh, and that's all, all, none of the other movies, none of that crap. That's all the star Trek that Gene Roddenberry had any really say, any real say in. He had a lot of direct control in season one. Now, season one of The Next Generation and some of season two, I feel like deals with such wild shit. I mean, big, like multi-dimensional, you know, uh, uh, multiverse, like just massive subjects that that show almost completely leaves behind by the time you get to season three. And it becomes a lot, lot straighter science fiction, you know, and is not dealing with these like, like when they go, uh, when they go with the episode with the traveler, when they go to like the edge of the galaxy and suddenly like Picard's mom is showing up and all the, you know, all this wild stuff is happening. Or, I mean, they're like, watch season one again. If anyone hasn't watch it again and just consider the scale of what's on the line in every episode and, and like what wild ideas, this is not hard science fiction. This is dealing in like the, the far, the, Fringe science doesn't even begin to describe some of these episodes, in my opinion. But most people don't like season one, so they don't think about it. But part of the reason I don't think they like it is because, like, the ideas are so massive, they can't, kind of like what you were saying earlier, uh, like with Bob Lazar, is that is that people, like, reach a point where they, okay, my mind just can't go there. Right? Right. And I suppose in some ways that's similar to what's being said here by, 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 these, by these aliens. And that's kind of how I got on this, on this train of thought is that um, like this, you know, the idea that that space time and thought, you know, aren't separate things. Star Trek was saying that in season two, the first episode, or wait, no, in season two, there's the episode where Picard is describing death 
He doesn't say you just go away. He wasn't describing it as an atheist. He's saying, I don't know. He's like, but the universe is so complex. It can't just be that we just die and disappear or, and we certainly, there isn't a sky daddy, you know, but it's something else, you know. Right. He was saying that uh, he thought that you change and go on to a different form of existence. Right. Right. Again, most Star Trek fans completely ignore that any of these things were ever said in Star Trek, but these are massive. I mean, these are, these are like just the biggest ideas that humanity's ever had in a very real way. Um, so do I think that if, if I were to believe what, what Ashid's saying here about what does, you know, uh, evolve and reach a stage where we will understand what space and spaceships are, I think it's pointing at perhaps those sorts of things. How about that? Okay. Okay. Uh, so let me turn the conversation in a different direction then. Okay. Why would he lie about this? Why do you think that this could potentially not be true? Oh, now you're getting at a point that I want to get at. Um, I mean, and I want to answer that, but I also kind of want to know your answer. What do you think he's saying there about space and spaceships? Yeah. Uh, well, I guess it's sort of in the same vein of what you were talking about. I think that, it's more than just what it sounds like mm-hmm. when, when he says space and spaceships, everyone thinks like, Oh, of course I know what space is. Mm-hmm. It's the distance between things. Mm-hmm. It's the empty space that fills up the, the distance between me and you. Right. Um, or me and the nearest star. Uh, and spaceships are just vehicles that allow us to traverse that space. But I think that the the nature of, our understanding of these concepts is very narrow-minded and limited Mm -hmm. uh, to what experiences we have had. And that if we are to understand these things in a new and different light, it's going to take a a revolution of science and thought and creativity. I, I think that there's, there's more going on in the empty spaces between things than people realize. And I don't, I don't know what it's going to take to get to that stage where we do understand it, mm-hmm. but I think we're just not there yet. And there, there's, there's something else. There's some other, like a spaceship isn't just a spaceship. Yeah. T- tell me, you want to tell me more on that? <laughs> I don't know how much more I can say just that, like there's there's a motive power that that can move us uh, in in the traditional sense, but then there's also um, the spaceships that that we don't understand yet, like the Bob Lazar spaceship. Like, how mm-hmm. does that function? That's that's a totally different level, a different order of magnitude of science than we have achieved. Yeah. Um, and I think that there there are other levels, not just in science, but in other areas that we haven't achieved yet. I'm just grinning ear to ear here. I mean, like I'm, I'm with you, you know, (laughs) like, like I, 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 I totally get what you're, what you're, I mean, we, we don't understand it much ourselves, you know, but I get where you're coming from and I get what you're saying. And, and, and I agree that there's a lot, I mean, we have incredibly limited perceptions. We know that, you know, you only need to pick up uh, or connect a FLIR camera to your smartphone to see how limited your fucking perceptions are, you know? So it's not (laughs) like, it's, it's not like that's not a fact that, that our perceptions aren't limited. 
Yeah, and we can say that now and know that we are biased and we don't see everything. We only mm -hmm. see what we want to see or what we've been trained to see. But that doesn't, just having that knowledge and wanting to learn more and see more doesn't make it happen. Right. Like, it's going to take a long time for us to be able to wrap our minds around most things that we think of as, as simple phenomena. Yeah. So... Uh, I still want to answer your question as to why would he, we need to hold on to that. Why would he lie about this? Or why would he say this if he wasn't being truthful? Uh, and I want to get to that. I want to read more of the story and, and then, then we'll, we'll circle back onto that. So, okay. So here we go. Uh, as for why he's chosen to reveal this information. Now let's talk about what the claim is anyway. Uh, she explains that the, the timing was simply due to how much the academic landscape has changed and how respected he is in academia. Quote, if I had come up with what I'm saying today, five years ago, I would have been hospitalized. End quote. He explained to you, uh, he added that quote today. You're they're already talking differently. I have nothing to lose. I've received my degrees and awards. I'm respected in universities abroad where the trend is also changing. End quote. Ashid provided more information in his newest book. Now, Here's the part that kind of sucks. Like this would have been a far more credible, uh, uh, story if he wasn't schlepping a book <laughs> and, and, and that's it. So the book is the universe beyond, uh, beyond the horizon conversations with professor Hamashid. Uh, and let's see, he says, along with other details, such as how aliens have prevented nuclear apocalypses and quote, when we can jump in and visit the men in black end quote. Uh, so, so he's saying there's more that like aliens have been actively involved in preventing situ, you know, nuclear disasters. Maybe he knows so much that he had to write a book because it was too much to give in this article. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and also it's interesting. He says, when we can jump in and visit the men in black, we need to touch it. We need to touch on that. Um, I'll keep going here. Just a, there's just a little bit more to the story. While it is unclear if any evidence exists that could support Ashid's claims, they did just come. Uh, they did come just ahead of a recent announcement by uh, Space IL, uh, the group behind Israel's failed attempt to land a spacecraft on the moon in 2019. Uploaded to social media with the text "quote ready to get excited again." End quote. The announcement contained a 15, 15 second video of the moon with text saying "back to the moon," followed by the date of December 9, 2020. It is likely that this is a follow-up to the, I don't know why they even brought that up. Um, yeah, I mean, because that kind of discredits this story. Like, these aliens are in contact with Israel, but yet Israel can't even successfully land, land a craft on the moon. On the yeah, moon. exactly. That's what I was thinking. And I'm like, that, that, that <laughs> just doesn't make, and it, and it kind of feels like, see, that's where the story gets salesy. And, and in my opinion, falls apart. What, what more money is there to be made than when you put up this, you know, the, uh, uh, this headline of, Hey, supposedly there's a galactic federation and the, you know, one of the top security officials, you know, for the Israeli government basically, you know, claims it. Um, that's enough, I think, to get people to click and for the Jerusalem post to make some money off of the story. Like, why do you have to go these other distances? I, I just, it doesn't give this, it doesn't really add any credibility. And again, it just feels like a marketing tactic for the story overall, but that's, or that's regardless of, of any of that. Um, let's talk a little bit about the men in black. Let's say that there were a galactic federation. Okay. Uh, if there were a galactic federation, I, 
I feel like there would have to be some kind of larger, not larger body, but higher up body, higher authority than the United States government or the Israeli government that is actually in contact with them. That's why I think it's interesting that he mentions the men in black, because that's basically how they get sold. Uh, you know, like in the movies or in the popular conspiracy theories that they're an organization that kind of ex exists above um, everything. And I mean, it, it's interesting that, that he goes there because I, I yeah, I, I cannot fathom that this galactic federate that like Congress people talk to the galactic federation uh, that, I mean, like I, I've known Congress people and, and they are just other people. You, you know, like the, the, yeah. they're, they're really not, they're nothing special. <laughs> In fact, I'd argue they're less than special. Um, they're just really good at lying to people, you know, and. Great conversationalists. Yeah, they're great conversationalists. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, so th that part just like, like, but he's making the direct claim that no, like, and that somehow Trump was going to reveal it. Like the idea that there's this galactic federation, but then we're still dealing with such petty politics here, you know, and, and there's just so much of this that doesn't really make any sense to me. Like, like that, that we're thinking in such small terms, but we're dealing with an entire gigantic galactic federation that is basically telling people on earth, don't do this. Don't do that. Blah, blah, blah. It just none of, none of that makes sense. Yeah. I, I can only envision this working if the galactic federation has representatives that only speak to the world's leading representatives, not mm -hmm. the Congress people or anything like that, right. but like the president and his handler, or I'm, I'm sorry. I mean like whoever <laughs> works with him Yeah, and uh, other world powers, other world leaders like Putin or, uh, Kim Jong-il or something like that. I don't know. Like the people who have the weapons of mass destruction, the people who have access to the power to push the button to use those weapons of mass destruction. Right. Right. Like that's who they're going for. Yeah. So uh, that's the only way that I can envision it working, because if they were to talk to Congress people, there's no way that they could keep this secret. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So. I guess, why don't we get into, I mean, do, well, let me ask this. Do you believe him? Uh, it sounds like a science fiction story. Yeah. Yeah. Like this, this idea of a galactic federation. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know. I mean, maybe there's some elements of truth there, but it's, it's hard for me to swallow. Yeah. Uh, I don't believe him. <laughs> I, th I think that the, that the notions like just, just. You know, and why would I think it's crap now? Why would he say this? Uh, my first theory is actually a conspiracy theory, that being what's known as Project Bluebeam, which I've mentioned on the show in the past. Wait, so is this the conspiracy about the second coming that's going to be faked? That's part. Of, yeah, that could be part of it. Ba yeah. So basically you had this guy who in France is actually very famous. He's kind he's almost, he was almost like the Alex Jones of France. Uh, he's been dead for a long time now, but uh, Serge Manast, he, in 1994, he came out with this whole book about it called, you know, project blue beam um, where he claims and where he got that information, <laughs> you know, it's like, okay. Uh, but <sighs> His, A, 
the theory makes some sense and B there are, there are, there's a lot of independent research that existed before project blue beam was even given a name or laid out there by Serge Manast that, that plays well with this overarching theory. And the overarching theory is, is that either the U S government or governments around the world, you know, he, he was big on the new world order and, and other nonsense. Um, his, his theory was, is that they were going to experiment with like holograms, you know, and lasers and everything and fake the gut go- that governments were going to fake aliens coming to earth so that they could create a one world government so that people would unite under this, uh, you know, under, under the banner of humanity, either, you know, as friends to the aliens or maybe even against. And a lot of people want to bring up the speech that, that, uh, Ronald Reagan gave when he was president about how different he thinks things would be if some alien invader came and how quickly we would unite as a species, you know, and a lot of people kind of point at that and say, well, maybe he was getting everybody ready. Like that was, you know, uh, uh, what's, what's the term, uh, programming, preparing people. Yeah. Preparing them. Um, but anyway, just predictive programming. Yeah. Yes. Predictive programming to get them ready for, okay, well, this is what we're going to do. And now some people want to say that with project blue beam, that they would actually mimic the second coming of Christ, which not outlandish. Like in my (laughs) opinion, that'd be a good trick to pull. But then everybody is going to be left on planet earth. And what happens to all of these religions and people who think well, like we were supposed to be taken up in the rapture. See, that's the problem is that the new Testament, the new Testament is really squishy. It's very, very squishy. Uh, and a lot of its prophecies are just remixes and yanked from the old Testament. Okay. It, it has very little of its own stick. And it's squishy in the sense that like most people don't realize that interpretations of the book of revelation, you have three and that's just the major ones. You have three major ones. You have premillennial, millennial, and post-millennial suggesting that, you know, and, and depending upon which, you know, you can back up any of these three, but they all have wildly different timelines. Like for one of those, you have a pre-tribulation rapture that occurs, and then people have to live here through the tribulation. For another group, it's, oh no, uh, you know, you, you don't, um, you know, everybody, the day of judgment is the same for everybody. There is no pre-tribulation rapture, all that's crap. Uh, and then you have people who, I mean, and actually the Catholic Church, who are the millennialists, I guess you would say, they would say that we're already living in, you know, like Christ is already kind of, kind. Of, I mean, he's going to come back, yes, but we're already living in a lot of the events of the, of the book of revelation and that the church is Christ's presence on earth. Right. That's a, that's an oversimplification of what they think. But point being is that there are plenty of ways that you could interpret uh, a new Testament exegesis as, as it would be called uh, to where it, you know, the idea of like a, a holographic Jesus coming down and ruling, you know, uh, would fit the, would fit the, the interpretation. And so, but actually, you know, what would happen here with Project Bluebeam is that it wouldn't really be Jesus. It's just a hologram and he's just the mouthpiece for the new world order and they enslave everybody, you know, um, it's a pretty good trick and it would probably work pretty well because I mean, not just because most people are stupid, um, but most people are so, I mean, a lot of people are cultural Christians to where they're so, uh, it's so ingrained, like to have a response 
to, you know, to Christ imagery. I mean, just look how happy people are about Christmas, you know, uh, that, yeah, I, I don't think it, it would be a hard sell. Um, I've read, and, and my point with saying that like, this might be part of project Bluebeam is that, and this, this is a, another interesting book that I'd read recently by a guy named Nick Redfern, who I don't agree with 20% of the time, but he did, he had a very interesting book about, it's his latest one, I think about the Rendlesham forest incident, which is kind of the Roswell incident of, of Britain. Um, and his book is make, makes an excellent case, which includes work from previous books, including books that were written in the forties, fifties, and sixties that he's really suggesting that the, the Rendlesham forest in, in incident wasn't a UFO at all. It was project Bluebeam. that like there were drugs used, you know, like LSD, there were all kinds of elements used to make people believe that they saw a UFO, but they didn't. And he pulls at like these, uh, what he claims were experiments done on like a French town, I think in the fifties, where oh, like everybody the entire went, town was poisoned. Yeah. And the argument goes is actually the whole fucking town was given LSD and they all thought they were seeing all kinds of wacky shit in town, the whole fucking town. And, and this happened now, I mean, whether or not it was LSD, I mean, the claim, I think the real world claim is, or the, 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 the official stories or is that it was some kind of like problem with the, the local bread. Where, where the yeast created oh, some kind the, of uh, the ergot fungus, something like that. Yes. So that's kind of the claim, but uh, you know, even, even people who I don't, people don't buy it and it's not just people like Nick Redfern. It's like the ancient alien types or anything like that, or conspiracy theorists. There are plenty of people who are actually part of the local government that are just like, no, that doesn't make any fucking sense, you know, to say that it was that. Um, so the idea that governments have been working on, how do, how do you trick people, you know, into believing whatever we want them to see? That's, that falls, that's kind of a similar situation to that's far more plausible and provable than kind of like earlier with Bob Lazar than saying, okay, this, the spaceships from Zeta Reticuli. No, maybe it's just something from an ancient civilization. Right. Uh, and so this, this is where, this is why I get bothered with the idea of aliens, because as soon as you toss aliens into the mix, like rationality goes out the door, in my opinion, with any of these conversations, you know, when there may be very rational explanations as to what's going on or, or as to what's being attempted. So why do I think that he came out and said this? Yeah, I believe project Bluebeam, And I, and I think that that's actually a very real thing. Uh, if not in name, certainly in concept. Uh, and, and I think there's been plenty, plenty, including with the Russians and so on, that that they have uh, they've attempted um, this sort this sort of thing. So, but that's one theory. Uh, I don't, what what do you got? What, what what do you think about Project Bluebeam? Perhaps what do you think about? Uh... Well, I, it certainly sounds like one crazy conspiracy theory. Uh, <laughs> I don't know what to say. I mean, I haven't done the research. I haven't done mm -hmm. the reading. Um, I guess it's plausible that, like, you know, a, a, a town's water supply could easily be poisoned by sure. one guy with a lot of drugs. Just yeah. pour them in there and, uh, you know, the whole town is more susceptible to suggestion. Mm -hmm. um, but I don't know. I guess I think it is believable, it's very plausible that this story has been planted uh, by world powers, uh, you know, so, somebody with influence is having this guy who is very reputable, 
mm-hmm. has an aw- awesome reputation. You can't refute. I mean, he did security for like 30 years or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, he uh, h- him saying this is very believable. Right. Because he has had access to high powers and secret information. Um, of course, when people hear this coming from his mouth, it's much more be- believable. Mm-hmm. Uh but I could believe that there's some sort of agenda behind this. Uh, I don't know. I don't claim to know what the agenda is. And I'm not going to like really put forth anything except that like it is believable that people are being prepared by some sort of governing force for um, this, um, I guess, conglomeration of power. I, I don't know how to say it. Like, Power becoming more centralized, um, you know, like in response to an alien threat or even like if the aliens are working with humanity, Mm -hmm. we need to we need to like come together and work together like never before and achieve world peace so that we can achieve this level of intelligence, this level of technology so that we can be ready for space and space travel. And spaceships. So, so, but I mean, but that's saying that he, what he's saying is accurate, that like there, there is a galactic federation and that, that we're getting prepped for it. Uh, well, I'm saying that I think it's plausible that that story could have been made up so that um, humans are more likely to buy into this, uh, whatever changes are coming that it, that is going to help us achieve this new level of technology. I'm not saying that, it even necessarily has to be real, just that it is believable enough. Okay, so... To to achieve the changes that um, whatever governing power wants to see happen. Okay, so you're saying that, yes, this would be part of a plan to centralize power on planet Earth. It could be. It could be, okay. Um, yeah, because, so, I mean, how, what, as much as you've been on the show in 2020 again it's, it was a joke almost. i mean it's true but it's kind of a running joke that you're on whenever we talk about aliens there have been that many stories in 2020 that i have considered that it's not art bell and it's no disrespect to art bell it's not art bell kind of stuff okay it's not coast to coast am uh, kind of fair it's you know uh military uh, uh personnel saying you're you know pilots saying i i saw this like we covered the uap story right and that was very official uh that was very there, there was evidence for that mm-hmm. um and you have you know uh ashid here saying that look in in the halls of academia the opinion's changing and and that's actually the guy who was reporting on the uaps is basically saying he, he was saying we have to get past where we can't even like theorize where we can't even suggest this sort of thing. According right. to Ashid, that's actually happening. We are getting past that point. Which is good because we need to, especially in academia, open up the realm of possibility of what is able to be studied. I agree. I agree. So, but you have that, that, I mean, and that, that, those stories made the rounds, including on Sovereign Tech. There have been plenty of stories just in 2020 alone. There is the creation of the Space Force. There is very clear, I mean, in my opinion, there's a very clear, I I don't always believe in predictive programming, and a lot of times it can be very much debunked, but this really does feel like we, you know, or we, not we, but someone is setting up the planet for some kind of bullshit, 
right? Much like you were saying. Uh, now, is it going to be like real aliens? I don't think so. Because again, n- nothing about that makes sense. That like somehow, like especially if he's claiming that the aliens have stopped nuclear disasters and all this other stuff. Could they help us with COVID-19? Could they, you, you know, like what, what's the pick and choose here? Uh, unless these aliens are fucking unethical as shit, you know? I mean, you you have conspiracy or you have UFOologists who come out and say that, oh yeah, there's aliens all over the solar system, but they're galactic slave traders, you know, and, and we're the slaves. And so like, is it going to be something really bad? <laughs> or is it just that they want us to follow our own path of evolution and they only step in when we're about to wipe ourselves out and they don't see COVID-19 as a, as a, as a real threat to our existence. Uh, I mean, I wish they'd tell us that, you know, <laughs> give like a reality check. Maybe I'm not saying that it's the reality, but give a reality check to people to say, Hey, you know what? COVID-19 isn't the end of your species. Well, you know what? If if you were to look at the data, you would realize that. I mean, like the mortality rate, the mortality rate is there. It's definitely there. But the vast, vast majority of people survive it. That's the facts. Wow. I just lost all my sponsors. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not saying that it's not unpleasant, but like it's it's not going to kill 50 percent of the population. Yeah, right. It's just not. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm not disagreeing with you. <laughs> so <sighs> while it is a, a threat in the sense that uh, the government is responding disproportionately and causing people to lose their sources of income and it's radically changing the way that we live our lives with all of these restrictions. Mm-hmm. Uh but the illness itself is not going to wipe us out. If anything, it's it's the long-term effects of the economic fuckery that the government is perpetrating on us. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, oh, boy. Wow. Um, <laughs> <laughs> there it is. Um, <laughs> I mean, I don't want to get sidetracked on this, but I am just going to, I'm going to put this out and it's not like this isn't public stuff. So I do PR work. Um, and I work with multiple, multiple medical professionals who hold very high positions, uh, at least in, in the United States. And, um, yeah, they, 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 they come right. And, and I know because I'm the one editing their fucking PR copy and they come right out and write that, uh, the flu is still killing more people than, than COVID-19 is, you know, um, and because in fact, it was, it was a funny thing because I, oh man, see, it's like the things that, things that, 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 that you're comfortable saying and not, uh, not that I'm uncomfortable saying it. I don't and you shouldn't even be uncomfortable no, stating I'm not, the facts, but I, this is such a polarizing I, issue. I know, I know, I know, I know. And, but you know, I have listeners of the show that are across the spectrum. Okay. And I'm not telling anybody what to do, how to act, how to react, whatever, Uh, I'm not getting in, you know, necessarily getting into that. I'm just saying that like, and and I've brought this up before. Okay. Let me, let me just say this because again, it's a public quote. So I'm not, I'm not like worried about NDAs, you know, or anything along these lines, but basically I'll say that when it was getting written up, it was written up in such a way to suggest that COVID-19 was somehow deadlier 
I think it was said, or just the flu. Like it was saying COVID-19 or just the flu. And the, the edit was instantly corrected by the medical professionals to say, oh, no, 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 don't say just the flu because people, more people die from the flu than COVID-19. And this was not like something from earlier in the year. This is incredibly recent. Okay. Uh, <laughs> it's such a mess. And, 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 I, and I hate, like the one thing I want everybody to agree on, not, you know, the mask stuff, all that crap, whatever. The one thing I want everybody to agree on is that the news media or that, that, that yeah, that the media is absolutely thriving and wanting you to be positively terrified and not for the reasons of your safety. It's for the reasons of them getting clicks, because if they were remotely honest, they would never publish a single number about the United States as a whole, as far as the death tolls and as far as the spread and effects of COVID-19. It's that's just dishonest because when, what they do is, is they take that number of however many millions or hundreds of thousands of people in the United States, right? They take that number and then they compare it to, to, uh, um, um, Estonia. Estonia, Rhode Island's the size of Estonia. Like if you're going to compare these, if you're going to compare the U S to what's happening in other countries that are apparently doing it better. And some of them are Trump's a fucking moron. Like I have no problem saying that. Okay. Uh, you, you, you need to compare by size and by population per capita. You don't compare. The United States is huge. The United States is the size of, of, of 20 countries around the world. Like saying that the United States is fucking up, you know, because they have such a high number and comparing it to fucking Estonia or even Britain or something like that is, is an outright lie. I mean, like that's just pure dishonesty of numbers, you know, because, you know, this isn't apples and oranges here. Uh, yeah, and there are even further segments that you could do, like, what is the age range of these people? What What is their level of obesity? You know, like, level of activity. What is their diet like? Yeah. All of these different categories that you could, that would give you more specific and useful information. Yeah. So, these are nasty tactics that not just the news organizations themselves, but also supposed experts are engaging in uh, that are ugly. And, 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 and honestly, not the experts are ugly. The tactics are ugly, right? Well, the experts might be ugly too. You know, I mean, politics is show business for ugly people. So Fauci looks like an elf. Oh, fuck's sake, that guy. (laughs) Anyway, so anyway, that actually brings it full circle here is that, you know, the media loves this kind of shit and hypes this kind of shit up and experts love to, you know, any, any kind of wild ass stuff that they can get out there. Because it is just show business for ugly people. And this guy's not fucking immune to it. Uh, you know, it, it's it, it's like all these all these celebrities claiming that they're getting COVID. You know, I don't know how true any of, any of that is. I mean, people get COVID. COVID exists. And I'm not debating that. Okay. I'm just saying that I think a lot of these celebrities are wanting to catch COVID because their movies aren't out in theaters right now. And they're such fucking prima donnas, you know, like their ego's not getting stroked enough. So welcome out and say, oh, I have COVID, you know, I mean, it's just like how people would go into rehab and then they get on the cover of people magazine, you know, six months later and Hey, I fucked up and I'm better now. You know, I mean, that's all fucking show business because these, you know, <laughs> these people just want the fucking attention because they're goddamn attention whores. And I hate to use that, the word whores in a, in a, in a pejorative sense, but they're attention whores and, and guys like this, no different. 
But do I think that there might be kind of an overarching plan here? Sure. You know, that, that it's something related to, you know, project blue beam or whatever, and that the, the media is getting you prepped so that, uh, varying powers get to take advantage of this kind of situation. Sure. Because the same exact fucking things happening with COVID. That's not saying COVID isn't real. That's just saying there's, there are people taking advantage of this. Like I, my personal opinion, I mean, what the fuck we're laying all this shit out. Let's lay it out. huh? Lay it out. So, <laughs> my personal opinion is that in California, the reason that the lockdowns are nonstop in California is because they're, I mean, and, and I talked about this actually when COVID first kind of became, you know, a hotter topic in this country uh, earlier in the year. I, I think in a lot of areas, it is all about uh, consolidate. I, I think that there is a, a heavy lobby to consolidate businesses. They basically want to, they do, they, a lot of businesses, not governments necessarily, but businesses want to put mom and pop shops out of business and just swoop in and buy all that shit up. I mean, yeah, this, is, no this is, yeah, this is a dream environment for conglomerates to, to just like soak up more and more and more business and more and more real estate and everything. <coughs> Amazon. Well, uh, so, <laughs> well, they're fuck that company's winning right and left with this, with this situation. Um, so I, I think there's a very powerful lobby, you know, around that. Um, but regardless. And anyway. I just want to put this out there that yeah. there, there is a very small chance, very small chance yeah. that what this article is saying is true. That there's a galactic federation. Yes. And okay. I just want to put this out to the universe that if there is a galactic federation, we're ready. <laughs> <laughs> Take us. Uh, <laughs> well, <laughs> You know, let's bring it around. Let's bring. All right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, I, and I'm with you on that. I'm with you on that. Um, okay. So, so I, I reviewed this book. <laughs> this, is, this, is this episode's going to tank the show. Yeah. I'm sorry. <laughs> we're really not this crazy. No, no, no. We're just, we're, I don't know. We had a little too much eggnog. Something, I don't know. There's something in the Yule log. I don't know what it was. And no, <laughs> um, so I reviewed this book uh, a little while back by Joseph Bloomrich, who uh, also heavily credentialed uh, all the credentials in the world that you need work for, you know, JPL. Uh, I mean, you know, all over the place and NASA, you're, you're, you're consummate rocket scientist. And he wrote a book called the spaceships of Ezekiel. You can find, because all my content is out now for free. This stuff used to be behind a paywall. Um, but you can find my book review of the spaceships of Ezekiel. I think that Joseph Bloomrich's work was top notch, top notch historical research. And his argument is, is that like what you see in Ezekiel or what's being described in Ezekiel chapter one of the old Testament or of Torah, as my people would call it was actually a, was actually a spaceship. That's, that's his, his claim. And I think his evidence stands pretty tall and his argument stands pretty tall that if that, if that book was in any way uh, documenting something that actually happened, that that's how it went down. Well, didn't he also say that the temple, the, the, the directions for the temple that he was building, like would perfectly house this spaceship this, the ship? Yes. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, I mean, speaking of like what Bob Lazar was talking about, the idea that there is like old spaceships laying around. I can, I can totally believe that. 
but that it was, you know, maybe one of these, like what Joseph Bloomrich was, was writing about, you know, and I, <sighs> like I could kind of, we're making connections here. Yeah. Uh, oh boy. <laughs> Look, I understand if you want to change topic from the alien spaceship thing. We don't have to go forward with this anymore. We can just stop it right here and save face. Yeah, but it's, you know, I th see at the same time, like, thank you. Okay. First off, but at the same time, I think this is what people listen to me for, you know, the really crazy outlandish yeah. series. Yeah. 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 And you know what? Or not outlandish, but well-researched like that. That's... You do the research that nobody else wants to do. Thank you. Thank you. So, in, and thank you for saying that coming from you, but also like, I've gotten this from a lot of people, especially lately. They're like, Brian, we know there's roads you don't want to go down, but go down them because we know you do your research. That's exactly what they say. They're like, this is their exact words. And I've heard this from many, many people as late. They said, we know you do the research, go there, go ahead and say it because we know you're not just talking out of your ass. Okay. Because for a long time on this show, especially as like, I try to court sponsors or whatever. I mean, now I, you know, <laughs> You've I'm, come to a realization that courting sponsors just isn't the way to go. No, you know what? Because you can't really get sponsors. And also, if any sponsor ever came to me and said, yeah, but what you just said about aliens, we can't sponsor your show. Sorry, that's nuts. If those people got offered a sponsor slot for Joe Rogan, they'd take that at a heart, in a heartbeat. And Joe Rogan has fucking nut jobs on his show, and he doesn't do jack shit for research. Okay. And then that's fine. If he wants to have me on, I'll, I'll gladly call him out right on air because you know, he, he's a good conversationalist, but we also recently, or we also said in this episode, how that doesn't necessarily mean that someone is, uh, is on the up and up honest or worthwhile listening to regardless. Okay. He's a good interviewer. Yep. He's a good interviewer. Great. Okay. That does not, that, that is by no means means that his show should be listened to, uh, in, in any way, shape or form, but regardless, he has absolute nut jobs on his show. They have no evidence whatsoever, have not done the research. I've heard it plenty of times and I've heard them. Uh, and yet there's not a sponsor on the planet that wouldn't jump on his show. And, and he could name the cost and they'd pay it. So that's crap. You know, just tell me you don't like me and, and, you know, and that's why you're not a sponsor and that's fine. All right. Like I, I can accept that, you know, I'm okay. I'm okay with that, but don't tell me, don't give me any other crap. Like, don't sure as fuck. Don't lie to me about it and say like, well, your numbers aren't enough. Are you fucking kidding me? This is, this is one of the, I don't want to say it's one of the biggest podcasts on the planet, but it's got better numbers than probably 90% of podcasts on the planet have. Okay. And if this is the hot fucking medium in the world today, this is a place you should be, whatever. I'm not, ha I'm not going to please them. And, we, and that we're getting off of, off way off the subject here. Okay. So I'm going to dive. I'm going to go, I'm going to, I'm going to go down the road. All right. The first like quarter of Torah. Okay. And or Larry, let me, let me start off with this. I think that there are, there is a, at least one organization on the planet that knows the truth around what we call the Bible. Like that, that knows what it really is. Okay. And that like what it's really saying, what really happened, blah, blah, blah. I think that there is a, uh, perhaps a, a secret Judaism as it were. Uh, now I've had you read, 
um, what what do they call it now? The Hiram Key Revisited, right? Yes. This is a book that does a pretty good job. It's not perfect, but it does a pretty good job of exploring this idea that, well, you can see this thread throughout Judaism, even Christianity, throughout varying religions of this like very similar vein of ideas that, that exist, right? Like, and they go to like St. Bernard of Clairvaux, but then they, you know, they go, they go back from, from, from that. It's a tremendous book. It really is. Even if it's not totally accurate. So, um, I think, and I, and I've also reviewed, uh, and you can find these reviews, the work of Ahmed Osman, who I think is fantastic. Okay. He has a point that basically all of, uh, Israel, Israelite history up to the time of King David or like from, from King David back is actually Egyptian history and they just changed the names. Okay. Now there's evidence that because like we know that, um, you know, within Torah itself that they lost the books. Okay. Like that, like they lost, um, you know, the books of Moses and everything like the, the Bible must've, and, and I've talked about this many times before. So anyway, if, if people have specific questions, they can email me and, and, and get in touch with me about it. So I firmly believe that, that most of, you know, is like the history of Israel from David back is actually just Egyptian names screwed up. I believe that. Okay. Um, going from there now you get past that. Okay. And you get into the times of, uh, like, uh, you know, Ezekiel, Isaiah, these characters and all this, which is where things get interesting. Like with the spaceships of Ezekiel. Now those are more like, okay, this is, this is, you know, the, the Israelites, this, these are the Hebrews, you know, and this is actually getting into more like actual documented history at that stage. And it's interesting because at that stage is when you can start finding artifacts of this kind of, of this point of history. It actually goes a little bit earlier than that, but, but that that's a fine place to go. I'm, I'm trying to be brief with this. Um, so everything before then, in the, you know, basically like, you know, when, when you read, when you look at Torah and Judaism, it's actually ordered differently than when you look at it as the old Testament in the Christian Bible, but regardless. So the first half, let's just put it simply, the first half of, of the Old Testament of Torah is bullshit. Like, or it's not bullshit. It happened, but all the names are wrong. Everything's wrong on it. And it's actually Egyptian history. And there are easy parallels that you can point at that that's what it is. Within that, that includes like Levitical law and all these other things. Now, okay. I, I don't believe that there are aliens, but I do believe that there are ancient civilizations on earth that were on earth that were wildly advanced. Okay. Wildly advanced. Could they have built the supposed spaceships of Ezekiel or what Bob Lazar claims to have found? Yeah. Yeah. I, I could, I could very easily believe that. And, you know, we could talk about the mana machine. I definitely recommend people, you know, like read up on that. That's a very interesting subject. The idea that, uh, you know, some, some very advanced technology that created space food effectively, you know, was getting hauled out of, out of, uh, out of Egypt or, and again, when you read Ahmed Osman's work and you look in, and there's some others as well, the idea that actually you're, re, you know, even when you're reading about Moses, that that's all Egyptian history, um, it, it creates a very clear picture. I'm just going to cut to the chase. I hate doing this. I usually like to spend a ton of time explaining everything, but I'll just cut to the chase on it. I think that Levitical law that like Torah and all that stuff. Well, a lot of that is actually Egyptian history. 
It was even things that they were carrying down. And I think that the Egyptians were effectively carrying down a, and, and this might, again, this is now it's a theory of mine. Okay. It's a theory. I, I guess I should be clear on that because I can, it, it's, it's a tougher one to prove. I think that much of Torah is actually a manual for that spaceship and for how to survive in outer space when flying through outer space. Wow. So what do you have examples? Um, like a lot of the, some, some of the, some of the, the medical knowledge kind of laid out in it. I mean, so here's the other complex part of this is that now like Kabbalists, okay. In, in Judaism, they very clearly state that the words in Torah and like the characters, just like the characters as in like the Hebrew letters, the characters are out of order. And if you knew the order, you'd be able to do amazing things. And so, so I, again, I'm trying to be, cause I, we're, we're getting on two hours here. I'm trying to be pretty brief and I know people are going to beg for me to explain more and I will. Okay. At some point I I'll get into this. But I, I basically think I think that that Torah is is like a, a Starfleet survival manual um, that that the Egyptians kind of carried down from a civilization that also happened to build the spaceships of Ezekiel. And I think there are people out there who know this. And if you know Ashid might, yeah, you know, I don't think that they're part of any galactic federation. If anything, they're just ancient humans or something that evolved on this planet. Um, I could, I could see that there are people who think that they know about like some, some galactic government or that they know about like that. There's some kind of like, I don't know, something out there may, at least in our solar system um, that's calling some shots or whatever, or that there's like a space fleet, you know, th things, things of these ideas. You know, I mean, all, all these kinds of ideas, but that actually, that's the origin of all that is someone found maybe one of Ezekiel's spaceships, like maybe that's Roswell, you know, uh, and that part of the reason that all these things have been held onto for so long have to do. I mean, actually, we, we joked about it, but, you know, as much as I think Zachariah Sitchin is wrong about a lot of things, and I firmly believe, especially about like aliens coming down and all this crap. Um, the idea that why is Jerusalem so fucking important in history? Like, what is the big deal? Why do you feel like you have to own that if you are going to be the power that exists on earth? Uh, of course, Sitchin in the book of Enki, like we were talking about, you know, he talks about how Jerusalem it was effectively an ancient spaceport, uh, where, you know, ships would take off from and all this other crap. And, and any, any, attempt to create a logical reason why the fuck Jerusalem matters so much, uh, I think is worth exploring because people seem to generally ignore it, like, or ignore the question, like, really, why does this matter so much? Like, okay, fine. It's the Holy Son of God, but it shouldn't matter that much. Come on. God's everywhere. You know, haven't we gotten to that point yet? There's gotta be something more. And the idea that there is this sort of secret religion that's always been kind of traveling down throughout history and knows this to some degree um, I can imagine that a sheed might somehow be, you know, like a part of that involved in that and that, that could, that could be an aspect of this wild stuff. I know, 
saying that basically, you know, you could say I watched too much Star Trek or something, saying that that Torah is effectively a Starfleet manual once you figure out what it's actually saying. Uh, I, I get it that, that that sounds absolutely crazy or that the space of, spaceships of Ezekiel are real or things like this. But again, no one's claiming aliens here. I'm coming at this from the idea that it's something that existed a long time ago and some people carried down throughout time or at least somewhat some knowledge uh, of it. And that's what I've got. So there, I went all the way. It was, or not, that's not all the way, but that's a good distance uh, to go down. Yeah. And I feel like there's a much bigger conversation that we could have around that, mm-hmm. but maybe for a different show. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I want to talk about fake meat, but no. <laughs> yeah, I do too, actually. You know, you, you brought up the mana machine. And yes. <laughs> wow. Amazing how this themes. Yes. <laughs> right. So the mana machine, real quick, very quick, is the theory that, that and this also speaks to Kabbalah because it's in the book of Zohar and, of course, in the Old Testament, that the, um, like what gave the Israelites manna when they were going their 40 years to the desert, leaving, you know, after the Exodus, you know, leaving Egypt um, was actually a highly advanced device that um, in the whole, like where the Sabbath comes from, the Sabbath comes from, it was the one day of the week you had to clean the fucking machine. Which essentially was a bioreactor that grew algae. Right. Yes, exactly. Which is what we theorize today would be a great space food for our astronauts. You know, and that's something that's being, you know, developed uh, to this day. And I think the mana machine is part and parcel of this subject, like Spaceships of Ezekiel, the mana machine. And it's not uninteresting that these are books that are like wildly out of print. Like, and, and, and you think they wouldn't be, but, but for most of them, you have to pay a pretty penny to get your hands on them. Um, that, 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 that lay out a lot of the evidence around this. So anyway, I, I yeah, the mana machine was about making space food. Why don't we talk about space food? So we basically suggested that this guy is either part of a, a secret religious cult or that uh, that it's Project Bluebeam. But let's talk about meat. All right, all right, all right, all right. We're just going to change it up. <laughs> Hard shift to another story that we had that I know you're very interested to talk about, Ellen. Um, yes, which you said at the beginning of the show would could potentially tie into technologies that could be useful in space. Yes, I think this would be because how do you solve that? How do you feed people in space? How do you feed people on Mars? You know, when everybody seems to be planning to go there and already have their governments in place because woo, we need more government in this solar system. No, we don't. But uh, <laughs> thanks, Elon. Uh, anyway, this story uh, lab. Here we go. Here's the headline from Bloomberg Green. Lab grown meat is getting closer to supermarket shelves. And this is from December 9th, 2020. So this is the day before Ashid's big announcement about the Galactic Federation. I don't know if this is a technology that they gave to us. No. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. So this technology, I think, just uh, kind of like came to fruition a, f- a few years ago. Yeah. Where uh, scientists are finally able to grow tissues from single cells. Uh, in petri dishes, essentially. Right. So slaughter-free meat, and I don't know how much we need to even like really get into the story. There's uh, not much of a story here. No, no, no. It is very short, actually. But the bottom line is, is that it's uh, so Singapore is they are they've made it legal to sell 
what do they call it? Cultured meat. That's, you know, yes. basically lab grown meat. Um, they are allowing for the sale of cultured meat point. Now it's expensive as fuck. I mean, we're talking anywhere from the hundreds to thousands of dollars. I don't know what it's going to look like when it actually ends up on the shelves in Singapore, but at present it has the issue of, you know, scaling in the economy. Right. Go ahead. So this article essentially says that it's getting closer to shelves right. in supermarkets and restaurants. Right. Uh, but it's not there yet because it is so expensive, but with economies of scale, the price per unit will go down. So eventually this will become more of a viable alternative to meat. Right. So it's not a question of whether it's feasible. It's just when, like, when is it going to be on the shelf? That is the only question. So they're making statement of fact, lab grown meat is going to be on the shelf. It's going to be a possibility that's going to be available to you. Um, I want to open it up asking you the question. And if you have other points to make, you know, obviously get them in. I want to ask you the question. Would you eat this? <laughs> would you? I mean, we're we're known as, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're plant based. Right. We're largely we're vegetarian. Uh, and, you know, what, is this something because I could see the argument that this resolves a lot of ethical concerns for people who, you know, for a lot of people, they're vegetarian, vegan or plant based because they disagree with the way that uh, animals are, you know, farmed treated, uh, this eliminates that entire equation, you know, that, that entire part of it, like the, the ethics kind of go out the door here or are, are they're not applicable. Um, would you eat this? So this is a really fascinating technology. <laughs> go Look, lead, lead away. My this dear. would not be exciting if I just said no straight up. Yes. So I'm going to talk about it. First. You are a <laughs> podcast professional. You do it. You, you, you take the story where you well, want. Thank it. you. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so this is a really fascinating technology. I'll start out just by saying that. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm all in favor of lab technologies, improving the way that we eat. And offering people more choice. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think that what you said is a really good point. Is something I've been thinking about recently, too. Um, that for people who are just vegetarian because of the way that they... It, it, the, the moral implications of, of the way that animals are raised mm -hmm. and slaughtered. Mm -hmm. um, you know, this does eliminate the animal cruelty perspective right or or it eliminates the animal cruelty from the equation um and also it like it's an ultra pure product mm -hmm. there there's no like the cow isn't living in this clustered and dirty environment its entire life being stressed out and bored and sprayed with antibiotics mm -hmm. and pump full of growth hormone. Well, I, I don't know actually what sort of hormones they use to stimulate the growth of the cells. Mm -hmm. So I guess I can't say that for sure. But I do know that in a lab environment, it's a very clean environment. Uh, they have to maintain a sterile environment in order to ensure a pure product. Right. So this is going to be higher quality than meat that you would get from like Walmart or something uh, or just from your average grocery store. Now, if, if you want like real meat, if you're really worried about the lab grown perspective, mm -hmm. uh, maybe you're somebody who buys like grass fed beef or all organic or free range. Mm -hmm. You know, those are the kind of terms that you look for with your food. Um, 
So I, I don't know. Maybe there will be studies that show like what the difference is nutritionally between this kind of meat and a real animal. Right. Per se. Uh, I, I think that for people who don't eat meat because they believe that from an evolutionary perspective, the human digestive tract is not built to handle meat. Um, this isn't going to change anything for those people. Like they're not going to eat it. Yeah. So if you're on a plant-based diet, because you consider that to be the healthiest uh, option, you know, like the optimal option for the human being, like this isn't going to change anything for those people. Right. Right. And I would consider myself one of those people. Mm -hmm. um, I think that plant-based is it, Plant-based diets have a lot of evidence, an overwhelming amount of evidence that they are the healthiest, they, they lead to the best nutrition, longest lives, um, and and fewest digestive issues. Right. And, and also, like, long-term issues that have nebulous beginnings, like cancer or heart disease, things like that. Uh, people who live plant-based, people who lead lives that have... Uh, you know, plant-based diet, a plant-based central diet. Mm -hmm. uh, they don't have nearly as high in, of incidence of these illnesses as people who consume meat. So, sure. so I just feel like this isn't going to change anything for me. I'm not going to eat this, but there are vegetarians in the world who eat things like the impossible burger or beyond beef yeah. that might consider this as an option because they're just not eating meat because of the animal cruelty part. Right. Um, but again, like it, it might change things for some people, but I think for like average Americans who uh, don't really care where their meat comes from, they just mm -hmm. want meat in general, like people who eat from McDonald's or whatever. Like I could see McDonald's or other fast food chains eventually switching over to this because this, I think someday will actually become not only better for the environment, but also cheaper. Well, Some, someday. Yeah. I mean, cause that's certainly not now. So, but the thing is like most people now might be freaked out by the idea of lab grown meat, but there's really nothing to be freaked out about. Well, if you're it's the same muscle tissue, right? So if you're freaked out about McDonald's, like, or if you're, if you're not freaked out about what you eat at McDonald's or most, most fast food places, you have no reason to be freaked out about this. Like, because right. though that, that meat in, in your McDouble oh, God. is, is practically a lab experiment in itself. Okay. <laughs> you know, it like, it's barely meat. There's like cows from 20 different countries. <laughs> there's soybeans. There's, yeah. there's wood shavings. Yeah. Who knows what kind of chemicals to make it right. smell good. Right. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, like this, this would be a far better option for McDonald's. Oh, yeah. Um, I think you raised an interesting point. And I know off air you were saying this. I don't want to take credit for this point. Uh, like this could be helpful for people who do generally perhaps buy meat at like Walmart or wherever. And they're usually getting lower quality stuff as to where this doesn't have to be put together like your average hot dog is in a bar rest 99 cent oh, package, God. right? So, <laughs> okay. And I mean, the problem there though is, is that it's going to be, it's probably going to be a long time. We don't know, but it's going to be a while before it's at that price to where, you know, it is cost effective to where it's cost effective to do that. But I also, 
I mean, there's an argument to be made that like Beyond Burger or Impossible Burger, I mean, those those are two different companies. Yeah. There's an argument to be made that their uh, impact, environmental impact, is higher. You know, like the, that they are actually, because of the, the lab process and the entire process that it goes through, it's, it's analogous to the idea that somehow Teslas are better for the environment when no, they're not. The entire production process from the battery and so on is actually far worse than the highly efficient internal combustion engine, along with the relatively efficient process of, you know, like refining oil and so on uh, is actually. Well, so, so like internal combustion engines are only like 20% efficient <laughs> uh, and you have to be careful with how so I hear what you're saying that like the process of developing a battery is very pollutive. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, that doesn't mean that internal combustion engines are great. Uh, but to go back to the the um, comparison that you're trying to draw, mm-hmm. you have to be careful when you're talking about Beyond Beef and Impossible Burger. Those are two very different companies yes. with different philosophies. Yes. But so, so Beyond Beef is just... Uh, it's like reconstituted vegetable proteins and mm-hmm. different ingredients that that are cooked in such a way that the taste and texture are very much like real meat. Mm-hmm. The Impossible Burger actually uses genetically modified yeast to produce nah. heme, which is the uh, the molecule that like carries oxygen in our blood, um, which they use in their burger to make it taste more like meat. Uh, so one is GMO, one is not. Uh but they are both highly processed vegetable matter, right. which means that they can't be, by their very nature, high in nutrition. Like maybe they're high in macronutrients like protein and yeah. fat. Yeah, which they push the protein on the packaging all the time. Right. Mm-hmm. But they don't retain the nutritional content, the vitamins and minerals that of were originally in the vegetables. Right. Those are wiped out. Right. Okay. So not like the best food. I mean. Right. But you could make the argument that because they're plant based, because you don't have to go through the process of raising and slaughtering the animals, Mm -hmm. that they're better for the environment. Yeah. So, yes. And, and, And I should correct myself on the internal combustion engine. Efficient. Wrong word. I meant reliable. Uh yeah, yeah, over yeah. the long term, definitely. Yes, yeah. So that that's that's a very different thing, and that actually leads to, this is a term I know it's not exactly new, but it it's definitely reaching a more of a fever pitch. And I can say this as someone who's in PR and that actually works with green what you would call green clients, um, you know, clients that are that care about uh, you know the environment or whatever else. Anyway, um, they use the term sustainability now. Okay. Which and, sustainability has been a big thing for like the past 10 years. But yes. yeah, definitely over the last couple of years has been more on the public's mind. Yes. So I, but here's the thing. I see the term sustainability, like the term climate change. Okay. Where there, there were terms beforehand that I think may have actually been more accurate, but then they want a big tent term to, or, you know, they being whatever company or government wants to take advantage they want some kind of like big tent term to toss in. So because climate change wasn't the word we used to use. Me growing up, it was always global warming. Even though before I was born, it was global cooling. And then it became global warming for 20 some odd years or whatever. 
It depends on what part of the planet you're talking about. Well, that's being true. warmed or cooled. Sure. Bottom line being is that they changed the term because the 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 evidence at the time, uh, and this would have been in the aughts, the evidence at the time did not support the narrative of global warming because things were getting colder. They changed the term to climate change. That way it could basically mean anything. Well, it might be cooling, might be heating. We, we don't know. You know like it, it could be, it could be whatever. And I feel like sustainability is a term that's getting tossed in now or that's being used to replace ecology, environmentalist, green, you know, all these other things, because now it becomes what is not necessarily what is best for the environment, because what's best for the environment, you can come up with some pretty extreme responses. And also they fit the evidence and they're, they're like not wrong. If you, <laughs> you know, if, if you're buying into this concept of environmentalism, right. I think I know where you're going with that. And yeah, we're not going to talk about that. Okay. Yeah, sure. Right. <laughs> so, yeah, we've gone plenty of distances this show. We don't have to go there. All right. Uh, but point being is that sustainability, I feel like is a term now that normally you would think, absolutely refers to more veganism that refers more to like environmental solutions and so on. Uh, sustainability can include this concept. Okay. Of, and, and it feels like a bit of a bait and switch where this is something that, that is getting pushed out there as an environmentally friendly alternative, you know, but I think a lot of people who buy into environmentalism would, would want to call horseshit on this because you know, they're still coming, they might even be coming from a stronger ethical perspective of uh, that. Well, no, because then this, this should still, because it's not a living animal, like at all. The cells are alive, but there is no, it's only muscle tissue. You know, there is, there is no cell, central nervous system. Mm -hmm. There's no brain. There's no body, really. It's just a tissue. It's not even a full organ. How could a vegan argue against this other than the health, like the matter of health? Well, that's the thing is like, it's, it's only a matter of, so for a person who does not eat meat mm -hmm. because they believe that humans evolved to eat a vastly plant-based diet, mm -hmm. uh, th there's no really good argument against eating this, except that it is meat. Uh -huh. And okay. like humans digestive systems aren't, aren't made for that. They're not optimized for that. Yeah. But there might, there, there might be an argument that like the lab, uh, environment itself, the, the sterilized environment, like what it takes to create that there, there is a lot of energy, a lot of processes that go into that. Like you have to have HEPA filters mm -hmm. and you have to like have a clean room and like all of these disposable items to ensure that the the environment is constantly sterile because if you get like mold or bacteria in your cultures then your culture is wasted yeah uh so like to sustain that level of sterility to grow this stuff in a lab like yeah that that takes a lot of waste right but right i don't know that there are any studies that show like what's that level of waste versus all of the food that it takes to feed the cows all of the methane that the cows are producing, mm -hmm. like all, all of the, the antibiotics that are used on them, like the, the dirty water that is running off of these farms. Right. Um, just stuff like that. So, I, so I don't know what the comparison is to yeah. like what the energy input is versus what the, the waste output is. Yeah. It's not a big enough, uh, uh, industry 
yet, I think, to really yeah. know. So so there's that. But that environmentalist argument could come up, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I could see that. Um, I mean, so, okay, so a couple things. And I guess, I, admittedly, I do, I do kind of wonder how, how this, how exactly this would work. And that's, of course, why I love having someone far smarter than me around, that being you. And <laughs> uh, so, well, one, I'm glad that it would seem to be impossible that we'll end up in the Soylent Green future where meat is like a rare thing, <laughs> you know, and then like only for the elites or something like that. Right. Uh, and I say that, you know, half in jest, um, the other, the other part to this. So there are like part of the reason that I am a vegetarian or that my diet is plant-based. Okay. Not just because you do a lot of the cooking and you're plant-based, <laughs> but, but I have been very strongly convinced against certain types of meat that, that it is playing with fire to eat them. Um, horse meat, chickens. Uh, I mean, those are the first two that come to my mind. Um, I've always, even when I was a meat eater, have had an issue with, because there are certain animals on this planet that I consider to be uh, sapient. I consider them to be conscious and like, I, I won't eat elephants. I'm not going to eat monkeys. I'm not going to uh, eat dolphins. Um, I, yeah, I generally, I would stay away. Eventually I was convinced of pigs and I would stay away from pork. That's not because, I mean, most of my life I didn't eat pork anyway, because I am Jewish, but, uh, or, you know, I don't practice that, but anyway. Well, (laughs) pigs are said to be very intelligent. Yes. Yeah. So eventually I got to the point where I'm like, yeah, that, okay. Like the the pigs are probably in that, in that number, just like cephalopods are as well. uh, uh, Corvids, you know, or right. Uh, like crows, uh, they're, they're another one that I consider in that number. And that's due to their sapience. And that's out of respect to, you know, that type of life form. Um, but again, like there is, there is great historical evidence as well as modern research around the, you know, issues of jumping of diseases, jumping species and so on. Like where, again, I think eating that meat is playing with fire. Uh, like you're, you're really asking for trouble in doing so. Now it's not, it's not uninteresting there. Since I was a kid, there has been a, a conspiracy theory that KFC hasn't sold you chicken in 30 years that they were lab growing chickens without heads. Like this is, this is an eight. Wow. Yeah. This is an age old <laughs> conspiracy theory from, from the eighties, like at least, uh, you know, when I was a kid and most people, you know, they'd hear that and they didn't really care. and they believed it and they go and people don't know right yes yeah you're totally right you're totally right and and so but like the still the issue i guess part of my concern here because a lot of what we do on sovereign tech is just bring up like okay what the fuck could go wrong um i understand that it's a lab and that would there'd be a like a high level sterility you know or 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 of a sterile uh environment i should say that's not 100 foolproof never right and so if they do lab-grown chickens Okay. Uh, you know, kind of like what they thought KFC was doing forever. I guess I'm still very wary that even if I felt comfortable eating the meat, I'm still incredibly wary over like that meat somehow still, I don't know. I I just have worries that, that, and my, my primary concern isn't necessarily even like the, like the, the nutrient density and how that affects my body. But like, 
I mean, is there any way, I guess what I'm asking here, is there any way that we could still run into the issue of like diseases and other things developing from like lab grown chickens? I, I wouldn't want to exclude that possibility. Uh Not that. So I think that like the chance of, of a wild disease, a wild virus or bacteria getting into uh, these cultures and infecting them, like it's, it's a low possibility. It's still there, but it, it could happen uh, in a very small uh, small number of occurrences. Mm-hmm. But I guess the only thing that I would really be worried about is like, I, it, th- there could be some sort of evolution going on that like isn't isn't being monitored fully. I, there could be some sort of uh, contaminant in the the food or whatever nutrition mm-hmm. they're giving to this tissue and and you just you wouldn't know until after you've eaten it so here's the flip side that i that that bothers me is that and that's a great point to bring up and and the flip side to what i'm asking is that is there any way you could bring on the disease this meat also uh you know living living species living creatures uh have their own you know defenses uh against disease and whatever else and I imagine there have been plenty of cases where fortunately the uh, um, immunity uh, systems within a cow kept us from getting something after we ate them, you know, because it killed it off in its own body before it went into our meat or, or you know, b- b- before we ate them as meat. Okay. Uh, I guess there's a part of me that's, that's worried. Yeah. Like what if there's some kind of, what, what if somehow this meat gets, gets a strain of something you know, or something evolves along those lines, whatever. And like, it's not a living creature that can fight it off before it ends up on our table. And there's this widespread, I don't know, something gets spread, you know, because of this. What do you think? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I know from working in labs that there are certain bacteria that can infect your cultures that are very small and hard to detect unless Uh you use specific types of dyes. Mm -hmm. And, um, you wouldn't really know to test for this type of bacteria unless there was something anomalous happening. Mm-hmm. And for that to happen, there has to be a certain like threshold number of bacteria infecting uh, the tissue or the culture. And um, like it, so, so when you cook meat, the the concept is that like you're killing whatever bacteria exists yes. on the meat. Yes. Um. But if you don't cook it fully, then there's the possibility that you could get sick because there's still bacteria in the middle, which only happens if you're eating like ground beef or something. Sure. Who knows what, like trichinosis from eating pork. Yeah. Well, that's that's a parasite. That's a worm. That's different. So bacteria only exist on surfaces that have been exposed to oxygen, Mm -hmm. which is why if you're eating a a full solid steak, you Mm -hmm. only have to sear the outside. You don't have to cook the inside. Mm -hmm. But uh, and you'll be safe because the bacteria is only on the outside. But if you've ground up the beef, then the bacteria is all mixed in there. Then it's it's more dangerous to eat it raw uh-huh. because it it could be that there's bacteria like in the middle. Um, and I, I don't know what the process is going to be with this meat. Like if this does end up being turned into ground beef or whatever. Uh, yeah, there there could still be incidences of food poisoning. Sure. Maybe it's no higher than the average process through which people get beef on their, you know, on their platter. Uh, so I, you know, I don't, I'm just tossing it out there that that's, 
Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. Well, the thing is, this is going to be a different kind of meat than any human being has ever eaten before mm-hmm. because it's not going to be eating corn. It's not going to be eating grass. Right. Like they can't just feed grass to this beef. You know, it's yeah. they're going to be feeding it like nutrients out of a bottle. So what is that going to make it? I right. mean, it, it's it's more meat than beyond beef. Right, but, but it's less meat than cow. Yeah, I guess the question is, is that will it have the nutrient density of a grass-fed cow? Uh, like, will it have that exact same? Because, I mean, that's the great argument for eating meat. Um, well, will it have the same fat content? Right. And that greatly affects the flavor. Yes. And yes. the way that it cooks. Yes. Yeah. So, I mean, this is inevitable. Like, it, it's going to be a thing. It's going to be on your store shelves. Like that, that again, we, we, I know we said that at the top, but it's absolutely inevitable. I mean, what, what other, do you have any other, other concerns, any, any other perspectives on this? Um, do you think it's going to, I mean, at the very least, do you think it's going to convert a lot of people who are presently vegetarian or or who are plant-based and they're just going to say, oh no, I'm back to meat, you know, as long as it's lab grown. What do you think? Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think there's a certain percentage of vegetarians that will eat this. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, I think that there's a lot of Americans who will eat this without question. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's some people who eat meat who would not touch this. Mm. Um, and I I think eventually, if this does turn out to be like a, in a, a process that can be turned into something more energy efficient, uh, that this will end up being in a lot of places, a lot of restaurants, even on spaceships. Yeah. Uh, You know, even, even on colonies someday (laughs) that are like (laughs) on Mars or the moon. Mm -hmm. Uh, But it's, it's only a possibility. I, I don't know for sure because this might end up being too much trouble. Yeah. Yeah. Well, again, it is an incredibly expensive proposition at this time. Like if you tried to buy it, you could easily for just a couple pounds, you could be spending a couple grand uh, to get your hands on it. So, yeah. And, and as somebody who consumes things that have been grown in bioreactors, like Mm -hmm. I, I take spirulina and chlorella. Right. And those are single celled organisms that are grown in these giant vats uh, that are dried out and turned into pills. And I take those because they're high in nutrition, but there's so many warnings that you get when you go online and look up these things about like, don't buy it from this place because it's got high contamination levels of heavy metals or whatever. Yeah. Uh, So that's just something to be cautious about Mm -hmm. is that uh, with anything that's grown in a lab, uh, there, there could be a buildup of toxins based on what is being fed to that thing. Or there could be a buildup of contaminants. You know, it's, it just depends on, like, what the testing is, what they're looking for, and if they even find it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if there's a possibility of fixing it. Um, so so that's the, the one thing that is kind of uh, worse about lab-grown food or bioreactor-grown food, like food that's cultured, is that there's there's more of a chance that, like, if there's any contaminants, it will build up in the system over time. Right. Uh, whereas like with wild animals or with grass fed beef, for example, uh, that's less of a problem. Mm-hmm. 
So do you think that this is ultimately a better thing for humanity or do you think it's, it's not even like a good band aid? I think it's better for the cows. (laughs) (laughs) I think that if we're able to shut down slaughterhouses with this technology, Mm -hmm. that's awesome because those places are disgusting. They are abhorrent. I, I think that like morally and uh, like not not only based on my code of ethics, but just based on my disgust reaction, mm-hmm. I think it would be a good thing for the world if slaughterhouses were shut down. There it is. They're, they're highly pollutive and I don't like what goes on inside. <laughs> yeah, I don't is. like the products either. But so like if we can save cows by doing this, I'm all for that. I don't know if this is better or worse. I think I'd have to see more studies yeah, to, I, to really make a conclusion. Sure. Jury's really out. Um, I mean, certainly first blush, I would say if this uh, if this keeps us from eating chickens somehow, um, great. You know, like I'm, I'm totally on board with that. <laughs> so <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I think there's a great line in Star Trek recently that, I, that really applies here. It's like, uh, what was it that Picard said? Uh, there's no form of life so great that it oh. has the right to destroy another life. Oh yeah, no life form is so important that it has the rights to usurp or that that has the right to usurp the rights of another. Something like that. Yes. Yeah. Uh, That's essentially how I feel about all animals. Yeah. And that might be a crazy extreme point of view, but uh, yeah, that's there it is. Okay, there it is. So, lab grown meat. Coming to a store near you, pick it up. No. <laughs> anyway, uh, why don't we take a, we'll take a quick break and then we got to finish this one up. Uh, there, there's something we, we went on a journey and we'll at least talk about it briefly. I think it needs to be talked about. <laughs> yes. So uh, we're, we're going to talk some movies. We'll be right back with more Sovereign Tech. Woo. Hey baby, I know, I know you are tired of Gmail. You have had enough. Well, I have a solution for you. What I want you to do is you go to Fastmail, okay? It's fastmail.sovereigntech.com. That's the URL you can use. You're going to get a discount with that. You are going to love this. This is email for email's sake. This company does nothing more. Just email and they do it right. All the latest security technologies you want to log into your account with your YubiKey, you can do that. Fastmail has your hookup. Very inexpensive plans. I want you to check it out. You go to fastmail.sovereigntech.com. That'll get you the hookup and it's an honor to have them as a part of Sovereign Tech. Woo! Let's get back to the show. The Golden Stallion doing whatever he wants to do. The Climax. It is time for the climax where we get to talk about whatever the hell we want to talk about. And of course, the we is me, the Golden Stallion, the man of tomorrow, Savzu, the Rated R Radio Star. I just realized I hadn't said that at all this show. But not only me, but also, of course, the inimitable Ellen Sovereign. And your new scientific advisor. Uh, you 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 have you have advised me on multiple <laughs> occasions and 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 really actually saved my ass. Uh I mean I'll, I'll just I didn't want that. to brag, but yeah. no, hey. You know, when you, when you know it, you know it, when you got it, you got it. That's, that's how it is. Um, I mean, I'll admit like with that stuff, with, with nutrition, like that's always been a weak spot 
or a blind spot, I should say, not weak, but a blind spot for me. Like I, I never, you know, I mean, cause we, so we work out together. I mean, we really practice a very, for lack of a better term, holistic health program overall. Um, and I mean, like I, I definitely, you know, instruct on a lot of the working out, the exercise and all these other varying things, but, but like with the nutrition, you're just there, but I've always been that way. That's always been a blind spot for me is, is nutrition. Well, you can't argue that it's a blind spot anymore because you've now read the same books that I have about That's true. nutrition. So you're not blind. It's just that when it comes time to make food and you're hungry, you want that food now. You don't want to wait an hour to cook delicious, healthy food. Get in the kitchen, woman. No. <laughs> I have the patience for that sort of thing. And I'm I'm very proud that I've developed this skill over many years. Oh, that's amazing. But I, I understand that not everyone has the patience. They don't want to learn the skill. They yeah. just want to have food now. <laughs> it, that that's a long history that we could talk about at some point <laughs> but, but it's just again it's always been a blind spot for me and and i just like i really appreciate uh the research you've done and i mean you know it's not just yeah i can go and read books but like you really and partly because of your your tremendous education and and own passion around it like you really understand like from the atom up you know, how a lot of this goes and, 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 that's, and put it into practice. Exactly. Uh, and, and that's, I have to admit like a lot of people, especially like these guys that are into the carnivore diet and everything. And then like, I listen to them and I'm just, yeah, but you don't know what you're talking about. Like, I know you, you feel like you have the study behind you and all this, but you don't really understand from the ground up, you know, like, like yeah. what's like, like what you're saying. And I can hear it, you know, there's that difference that, that it's, it's even something in the voice. Like, have you ever read a biochemistry textbook? Yeah, right, right. <laughs> you know, and and and, that's, and people can eat however they want to eat. I'm I'm not here to I'm I'm not here to like you know get after people about that. I'm just saying that it's really for me. It is such a privilege to have somebody in my life who really knows their shit and and understands it. You know, at, at such Aww. a deep level. So thank you. Yeah. No. Absolutely. Um. So. One area where I kind of get to put you, where I get to add to your education is the education of science fiction. Uh, and I, I've even called it that on the show many times where I've been putting you through a science fiction education. You're already well on your way because you're a nerd, you're a dork, you know, in all the beautiful oh, ways. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> uh, Shamelessly dorky. Yeah, I, I mean, a nerd in a beautiful body, but a nerd nonetheless, to quote a movie. And, uh, <laughs> uh, oh boy. Um, and so you know, one of the, one of the things that, uh, we've talked about this, like how I got back into buying movies, you know, into getting Blu-rays was that I wanted, you know, when we became friends initially before we were even, you know, in a relationship, um, when we became friends, I was like, Oh, she's got to see these movies in the best possible light that they can be seen at the best quality that they can be seen. And that really got me going back down the road of, of buying Blu-rays. Um, and so we have a lot of fun going through my collection. Uh, and of course it gets added too often enough, but, uh, something that I added and I forget what, I think you asked me about it. Yes, I did actually, because I saw an SNL skit that made reference oh, that's to this right. movie. It was very funny. With Jim Carrey yes. being Joe Biden. That was fucking hilarious. <laughs> yes, you're, you're right. That's what it was. Yep. Uh, and, and. I guess we'll just say it. I mean, he went through the teleporter, but there was a fly in there. Right. He ended up becoming the fly. 
and uh, he landed on Joe Biden's head. That that was the skit. <laughs> yeah, well, SNL, but, go ahead. Yeah, so anyway, SNL did this skit. I saw it. I was like, you know what? I've heard so many cultural references about The Fly, but I've never seen it. Yeah. We, we've got to watch this. Yes. But then you told me there's not just one Fly movie. Right. This is a whole franchise. It's five films. Um, and what was uh, serendipitous was that uh, Shout Factory, which is a company I just, I love. They they put out these great old school Blu-ray releases where there's like tons of special features and everything. I mean, they really do great work and they do new scans and all. It's, it's wonderful. Um, they put out a box set of all the Fly movies. And whether or not what they were inspired by, you know, the Joe Biden thing. I mean, SNL only did that skit because they knew that these things were cultural memes you know, like these elements of the fly, like that people would recognize the transporter and so on and that, that people would get it. And that really speaks to that. These movies were at least at the time, a big enough deal. Um, my, the reason I want to talk about them and that we watch them, um, is that I really don't know why this, this isn't considered one of the great franchises in history. Like this should be right up there with alien it's it's an amazing series of films. Yeah, uh, I mean, it should be up there with Star Trek, with every major science. This should be bottom line. This should be a major science fiction franchise. But most people don't. Maybe they've seen one or two of the films, maybe three. Uh, but most people don't include these movies in the conversation when you talk about great science fiction franchises. And I, I want to talk about them here to correct that. Uh, because I don't know anybody else that talks about these movies, you know, maybe geeks guide of the galaxy could, maybe they did at some point, but if they haven't fucked them, I mean, fuck them anyway, but you know, it's, these are fantastic. Every single film that we watched in this series, I was like, wow, that's a great movie. Yes. Uh, and, and I've, so I had seen three of them. I saw the original, which most people remember with Vincent price. Uh, I saw the original, which is from 58. I saw the fly with Jeff Goldblum, which is the one that SNL was kind of mimicking and that most people really remember because it's such a gross movie. Yeah. And Jeff Goldblum is in it. Yeah, right. And he did great. Uh, and that's from 86. And I did see the fly too, like on a Fox movie night, amazingly. And that's from 1989, but there's two movies in between that or in between all of that, which is return of the fly, which came out in 59, which also had Vincent price in it. And then there was curse of the fly from 1965. Now curse of the fly and part of the reason I was really willing to get this box set, Curse of the Fly, is very rare. In fact, no one had seen it since it had been in theaters until 2007. That's almost wow. 40 years later that nobody had seen this movie. That's and, amazing. Yeah, I mean, and, and and that's an easy way to to hook me. Rare books, rare movies. <laughs> that's my that's my jam. You know, that's my stuff. Just put rare in front of the title. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Because I'm a rare guy. And uh, so, yes, you are. Yes, you are. <laughs> I love you. Uh, <laughs> so, <love> you. <laughs> uh, so, so you have it's a five film series. Um, they are not all related. The Fly and ret- from from fifty eight and Return of the Fly. Return of the Fly is a direct sequel to The Fly. In fact, it, it's an impressively direct sequel in that they really did reuse or rebuild a lot of the sets to a very careful level. I mean, they're very precise. It's a high level of precision of making sure that, that the movies flowed well together. Um, but curse of the fly seems to like jumble up the fly and return of the fly. 
Yeah, it takes elements from both movies and kind of screws with the timeline of things. Yeah, and is somewhat of a sequel, but still a good a good film. Yeah, um, yeah, very good film. Different, but good. And the, then The Fly with Jeff Goldblum and The Fly 2, those those take place after the other, even though there, you could argue there's some inconsistencies or, or contradictions between the two. Uh, like at the end of The Fly, it seemed pretty clear that the baby, because The Fly 2 has to do with Jeff Goldblum's that character's son. Okay. Uh, at the end of the original fly, it's abundantly clear or it's stated anyway, that, um, what's her Brundle. name? Brundle. Oh, wait, no, no, you're not talking about Brundle. You're talking about the, the woman. guy, the woman. Yeah. The, the reporter. Right. That he had sex with. Yes. Yeah, a Gina Gershon, whoever. Anyway, she, she, she works for an editor. And at the end of that movie, it sounded like the baby that she was having was actually the editor's baby. Uh, not, that not Brundle flies in the alternate ending in the original ending. That was true in, in the alternate ending, which we saw in the Blu-ray, which is a great reason they have Blu-rays. There's that weird baby butterfly scene. Well, Fucking weird. So in the alternate ending, mm-hmm. she wakes up from a nightmare saying like, Oh my God, I'm, I'm having Brundle's oh, baby. Oh, you're right. And, and the reporter guy is like, no, you forget. It's my baby. No, you're not right. His. Yeah. But, you never get confirmation in the original ending, whether it's the Brundle baby or the other, the human baby. Because it just ends with, with in Brundle's lab. Right. Where he's, he's dead. And yeah. Okay. No, you're totally right. I got that confused. Bravo. Okay. So maybe there's <laughs> not so many inconsistencies between the fly and the fly too. Um, anyway, I, I kind of want to talk about like, let, let's go movie by movie a little bit. Okay. We don't want to, sp- we don't yeah. need to spend a ton of time on this. Um, but the fly from 1958 with Vincent price, this movie was amazing. It started out like an Alfred Hitchcock movie. Yes. It immediately hooks you into the mystery. Yes. You are wondering what the fuck is going on and, and you have no idea. And, and it does a tremendous job. Actors are all top of their game, uh, in, in making you like, wait, why is she listening to the fly? Cause you have no idea. They don't explain it yet. What happened? Um, yeah, it, it, keep going. Oh, okay. Uh, so anyway, the story is, it starts out with a murder mystery, essentially. Right. Um, and then it jumps back in time a few weeks uh, to this uh, this guy who's doing research uh, in his basement, essentially. Who was uh, the guy that was murdered in the beginning. Right. Yes. Um, and his wife will sometimes come down into the lab. She'll, like, bring him food. He'll show mm-hmm. her what he's working on. Mm-hmm. Um so he, he builds these teleporters that can move objects from one side of the room to the other. Yeah. Um, and he's trying to perfect them because sometimes he'll send, like he sent an ashtray through and the words showed up backwards on the other side of the teleporter. Yeah. So he's like trying to build this to fix it. Um, he actually makes the family cat disappear and just doesn't like tell anyone. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and then... After the cat disappears, he's like, oh, shit, I shouldn't have done that. So he starts using smaller animals and eventually he finds out that it that it works, that he can teleport. He does perfect it. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So he can teleport living things. And he's like, to prove this, I'm going to put myself through. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he does it. But there's a fly in the teleporter with him. And uh, he, he ends up with like the head of a fly. But you and the don't arm of see it. You don't right. see it. You don't initially. see it at first. Yeah. Uh, like he he's just typewriting these letters to his wife and mm-hmm. sliding it under the door and whatnot. Uh, but eventually you do find out that like 
he has the head the head and the arm of a fly mm-hmm. and that somewhere out there is a fly with, with the head, head and arm of a human. Right. Uh, and he's, so most of the film is like him telling her, go find this fly, catch the fly, bring it here. We'll go through the teleporter again together and hopefully mm-hmm. we can separate out. Mm-hmm. But uh, like after a couple days of being like this, he starts feeling these weird urges and has strange thoughts and it's almost like he has two consciousnesses battling in his right. body. Uh, it's like the split brain experiments that you were telling me about. Mm-hmm. Um, so so anyway, uh, they can't find the fly in time. He has his wife help him commit suicide. Yeah. And she like she takes the blame for it entirely. Yeah. It's a great murder mystery. Yeah. Uh, and, and eventually the... The fly with the human head gets found as well and kind of exonerates her uh, because the, the 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 police investigator. And this is all happening in Canada, by the way. There's only uh, two people that see the fly with the human right. head. Vincent Price, who's the character's the lead character's brother, the fly's brother, basically. And and then, yeah, they the, see the it. main investigator right. and they kill it and they, they, they kill that fly. Um, right. So because he, he wanted it destroyed since right. he couldn't rescue himself. Right. So this movie, I mean, again, keeps you hooked and you're still figuring everything out and, and you're, you're, there's the tension around, you know, wow, are they really going to like lock this gal up, you know, for, for what happened? They don't believe her story and everything. Uh, but then more or less everything turns out fine. You know, it kind of in, in the end, other than the fact that the, her original husband who turned into the fly, you know, he's dead no matter what. Yeah. Um, and the real element of horror in this film, because it is categorized as a horror film. Yes. But I think like it's absolutely horrifying to imagine being split that way. Yeah. Like having your head transplanted transplanted onto a fly mm-hmm. and then having a fly's head transplanted onto you. Like right. what is you and what is the fly? Yeah. And yeah. those two elements clashing and fighting with each other. Yeah. Now I want to bring up something that, that I found to be very, very interesting. That it was a realization watching this. Now you have to understand. So this is basically a transporter that gets developed in this movie. And this is before star Trek. This is in 1958. Okay. Long before Gene Ron Mary even had the fucking idea. Probably. Um, I think he stole or he lifted a lot from this movie for star Trek. I think he took the transporter from this movie and Vincent Price gives a really great little speech at the end about that, that the most worthwhile thing to do is to search for truth. And it's and, also the most dangerous thing. Right. But he says, like, he even calls his, he calls his brother, he's talking to the guy's, you know, to his nephew, to the guy's son. And yeah. and he, he says a line to the effect of, it's like, he was a person exploring, he almost literally says where no man has gone before. And to have the transporter in that line, which is so core to star Trek. I, I think Gene Roddenberry lifted a lot from this and it's not a bad lift because it's a damn good movie. Like if you're yeah. going to grab some, some great stuff from science fiction, go ahead and grab this. Uh, there's that. Um, what's amazing to me though. And I didn't realize it also again, until I saw this, this is a cultural meme. Help me, help me. You know, that's from this movie. That, yes. that it were, Cause that's what the fly says with the human head. He's okay. stuck in a spider web at the end of the movie. Now what I find to be incredibly impressive. And one of the reasons that this entire franchise should stand as one of the great franchises in history is that the phrase, 
There's that phrase, which is a cultural meme. Nobody even knows where that comes from, but all so many people say it all the time, right? If they're like, they're pretending they're small, they're just like, help me, help me. Uh, in the Jeff Goldblum fly, uh, I, again, I think it's Gina Gershon, the actress, she says, be afraid, be very afraid. Now, everybody says that today. Like, I mean, that, that's a classic line that comes from that movie. It is amazing that a re that the original and a remake both create such a powerful cultural phrase, you know, cultural, cultural meme, really. Uh, in fact, that's, I, I dare say that's unheard of. I, I can't even think of another movie where the original and the remake both have entered the collective consciousness, uh, you know, cultural consciousness and have like lines that are spoken by everybody. I mean, to, to, to that level. Um, that's amazing to me that, that, that ended up happening. Uh, anyway. So yeah, the 58 film, just phenomenal, uh, an absolute classic, still in, eminently enjoyable today. It's like watching a great episode of the twilight zone, I think. Um, and, and it, and it works. Uh, do you, did you find the fly to be scary? Like the, 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 the hybrid that ends up, you know, um, Arthur there or whatever. No, I, I think that he retained his humanity for long enough mm -hmm. in the film that it didn't get to the point where it's scary. Again, like I said, the real element of horror was the split consciousness. Yeah. Yeah. So it's what it implies that makes it scary. I think that's part of what makes it a great movie. Yeah, like mm. it makes me stick sick to my stomach to imagine like suddenly I've just been spliced into a fly. Right. And now I have to live like a fly does. Right. Yeah. But I guess part of that too like knowing what happened in later versions of the fly kind mm. of adds to that level of disgust. But but each movie kind of steps up the element of horror more and more. Yeah. So return of the fly, which is a sequel basically has to deal with the guy's son wants to pick up his daddy's work. And Vincent price, his uncle is there to, and he basically concedes and ends up helping him out. Uh, a fraudster gets involved and kind of steals the technology. I mean, you, you or not, or tries to steal the technology to sell it. Um, but a somewhat similar thing happens, but the fraudster, like in each of these movies, the reason that the fly ends up, like joining with a human, they always do change it up. I think in a very logical way to where it's not always the same accident because I think that would get cheap. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, I don't think they have to go too much into the plot around return of the fly. Um, but they definitely bring in a lot more. There's a lot more deaths, a lot more killing. The interesting thing is, is that you're, you're actually rooting for the fly. I think in return of the fly. Yes. Yeah. Like, like he's a heroic character. It's almost a comic book movie long before that was much of a thing. And it delivers. Like, I think it's good in, in, in that sense uh, to where, yeah, like there's, there's horror elements, but at the, at the end of the day, it's a very heroic film. Um, I, in my opinion, what, what do you say to that? Yeah, I agree because um, well, he gets turned into the fly against his will. Yep. I mean, like the the fraudster is caught by uh, the the experimenter. Yeah. And so the fraudster throws him into into the teleporter, and he sees that he's scared of flies mm -hmm. and being which is traumatic because of what happened to his dad. Right. Yeah. Uh. So, so he does this on purpose. The fraudster turns him into the fly creature on purpose. Mm -hmm. Um. And then after that, the fly creature is just trying to like get revenge. And then save himself by going through the teleporter again with the fly version of himself, which he actually succeeds in in, yeah. this, in this movie. It has a happy ending uh, as compared to the first. Yeah. 
Um, and, and I think that that works. Uh, so it's nowhere near as like, I mean, when you're watching the original fly, like you are so engaged cause you just don't know what's going on. You're mm-hmm. so hooked. Uh, it's not at that level, but it's a fantastic movie in its own right. Again, and partly because I do consider it a proto comic book film, um, before that formula would get perfected. I, I think it really, really works on that level. Uh, yeah, it's yeah. different from the original, but still really great and very faithful to the original, which I, I always love that when a sequel really gives a shit about its, its predecessor. Um, mm-hmm. so it's got that now curse the fly does not give a shit about the predecessor. However, for a movie for 1965, this is probably, I would, I would almost argue this has the grossest and most horrific thing of the entire series. <laughs> It's up there. Yeah, it's definitely, I, I'm not going to say that. I think the next one is the You grossest. think Brundlefly is the gross? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well. But right. but this is definitely the grossest of the original trilogy, I guess you could say. Yeah. Like, this, before there was CG. Before right. Before there was, like, really great effects. Yeah. Th- this is, um, this movie, you're going to walk away from this movie, like, oh, oh, fuck. Like, it, it's just a tragedy. Like all around, it's just a, it's a nonstop tragedy. Yes. Uh, other than maybe the gal ends up like with all that family money yeah. in the big house, yep. <laughs> which is good for her. <laughs> There's a girl. Uh, she she's a pianist, a concert pianist. Yes. Um, in the beginning of the movie, you see her breaking out of a mental institute and running away in her underwear. Yeah, <laughs> it, it looks like a Russ Meyer film. Yeah. <laughs> Not that I'm you know complaining about Russ Meyer movies, but yeah. Yeah, but in in the end of the like after all the tragedy and everything, she does mm-hmm. end up inheriting this house. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's a lot that happens in between. Like she meets this, uh, she meets the scientist. They end up getting married after knowing each other for a week, which mm-hmm. is really problematic. But whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> she goes to his house. His house is actually like a. A big farm complex, I guess. Yeah, yeah, in um, Canada. Yeah, yeah, and uh, they they are carrying on the experiments with the teleporters. Right. And now the interesting one in this is that they're actually teleporting. It's so successful they're teleporting between London and Montreal. Well, so so the older gentleman did. He did. Right. Teleport from uh, Montreal to London as an experiment Mm -hmm. then the police found out he didn't have a passport so he's like (laughs) quick send me back now i I mean i would just say like you don't understand i teleported here jackass (laughs) like you know and and borders are going to mean nothing once this technology hits the streets and well anyway it doesn't go there so yes there's a new element of there's a teleporter in a different country and there's somebody else in that laboratory Mm -hmm. who is kind of a wild card character because you don't know who they are or what their deal is but they're they're young they want to have their own life they're tired of working in the lab yeah i don't want to spoil this one too much because this is the one where i like normally i don't care about spoilers because these movies have been out for however many decades like if you haven't seen them by now that's on you but this is one that for most people has only been available if you're lucky 10 years and so you know i like i don't want to give it all away okay but i will say I mean, I, I will mention the gross element, okay? Because you know it's coming when it comes. Uh, so let, let me say this first. I, this movie, I think it has the weakest script of them all. Um, but 
when they teleport basically two people at the same time. Oh my God. And they appear in London as a mass of whatever the fuck that is. It's just fucked up. It's like human it's centipede so level creepy. fucked up. It's yeah. beyond that. It's y- like, yeah. Ugh. I was like, oh, oh no. I mean that like that. That's exactly how I reacted to it. And then you it. tell that poor guy to dispose of it. Yeah. Oh, it's oh. fucked up. Fucked up. Uh, so no, that is not okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This, that, that was in my opinion, like that was, if there's a gross level, which is kind of part and parcel of the fly franchise, uh, for me, that takes the cake like that, that, that just took it. Um, but it's not like, this is no, it's funny because the second one is very much a feel good movie. This is no feel good movie. No, um, it, it really is a tragedy. Like yeah. you said, like you just, and the more the movie goes on, the more you discover how deep the tragedy is. Yeah. 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 Like yeah. this has been going on for a long time. Yep. It, it It's, it's messed up. So anyway, this movie apparently was not a major success. I mean, it would appear there are reasons that it never got a real home video release until 2007. Uh, uh, and just be aware there's something, there's an element in this movie that is kind of racist. Oh uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's like analogous to blackface. Well, we'll just say it. There, there, there's a gal who's clearly a white gal and like they, they did horrible prosthetic work to make her look, Asian and and it just fails and it really comes off as insulting yeah like why didn't you just hire an Asian person to do that role if yeah, that's when they hired mean. an Asian guy to play the husband you yeah. know like it just didn't make any sense yeah it, it was really like that was that just looked dumb it was it was just not the right not not a good look no uh but I mean also throughout these movies, there's themes of misogyny and you yep. can say that's like a product of its time where, yep. where they're just laughing off. Oh, you silly woman. Stop worrying. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Get back to the kitchen. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But it's just, you know, it, it was a very different time and not that that excuses any of the behavior, but just be aware of that when you're going into it. Like not only is this gross, but there are other things that might irk you about it. Yeah. Well, fast forward to 1986, and we end up with a quasi-remake by David Cronenberg, of course, who is a legend, great filmmaker, uh, Videodrome, Scanners. I mean, you go down the list. Also, he's an actor. In fact, he's acting in Star Trek Discovery as we speak, uh, which is still a shit show. But regardless, David Cronenberg and what he makes is usually pretty good. Uh, And I got the, it's Gina Davis. I don't know why I kept saying Gina Gershon. Gina Davis is the one who, she plays the, the lead gal in this. Uh, the reporter or the journalist, as well as Brundle's, uh, you know, Jeff Goldblum's uh, love interest in the film. So anyway, um, this movie is widely regarded a classic. Uh, There's a reason, again, that SNL mimicked it. You know, they knew what they were doing Um, and because most people would recognize it. And uh, a a movie that has won awards, particularly for its effects of grossness. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) And, I mean, this is the one, if, if anybody's seen any part of the Fly franchise, this is probably what they've seen because it's just that it was that big of a movie. It's Cronenberg's most successful movie to date, probably ever. Uh, and Jeff Goldblum's performance is top notch uh, in this, you know, and it, it is different enough from the first Fly. Uh, and yeah, I mean, go ahead. The movie's gross, right? I mean, uh, we don't like, have to get into the plot. Every minute, every minute that I see Brundle's face. I am yeah. grossed out. <laughs> I, 
I mean, but after he turns into the fly, not before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah, yeah, this movie, also a tragedy. Mm-hmm. A uh, l- lot of grossness, a lot of like oozy, slimy things falling off and yeah. falling out. And But great movie, right? I mean. Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah fascinating yeah. concept. Yeah. I think uh, as far as science fiction goes, it's really awesome. It's, yeah. It's, it's, it's got a lot there. It's exploring I mean, things. Yes. Yeah. And, and also David Cronenberg has some weird thing about like the new flesh, especially if you watch Videodrome and some other movies. He's really about like humanity becoming something different. And I don't know that it's necessarily a good thing, but whatever, you know, that I noticed that more watching this movie this time around, like just how much of like Cronenberg's, you know, real touches are, are on it and that he's trying to get something across. I thought some of the more interesting things were what we caught in the special features on the Blu-ray disc where like there was a scene where he like practically ate a woman in like a dumpster. Oh yeah. Yeah. That wasn't even filmed. Right. All you got uh, to see was a, a storyboard. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I guess they cut it out because it might've been too disgusting or something, but, uh, it, it was supposed to be like a prelude to what happens at the end. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, the, the fly at a certain point is able to, the brundle fly, I should say at yeah. a certain point is able to, uh, vomit stomach acid onto his food. That'll and then melt flesh. Slurp it up. Yep. As as a fly eats. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, so you can imagine what this script would have looked like if it had been filmed where the Brundlefly actually eats a woman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was really, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, so I mean, well, you know, with this one, with the fly, give me a ranking of like out of 10. Oh my God. I don't know. I mean, maybe the fact that I'm so disgusted by it is a good thing mm-hmm. as far as like mission ratings go. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, I like that it held true to the teleporter thing. I, I like the experiments that he did trying to figure out how to make this thing work and that uh, he still stumbled across accidents mm-hmm. like, like with the cat and the, the monkey, the baboon mm-hmm. uh, It's actually really horrifying that part too yeah <laughs> um i i thought the transformation that he went through from human to human fly mm-hmm. was while being absolutely revolting uh kind of fascinating sure yeah you, you learn about like at first he thinks he's being purified right but he's so then, much stronger and everything and yeah. yeah but then he starts becoming uh like heartless and yep. cruel and he does things that I think he would have regretted if he were in his right mind. Right. Um I also think it's really sweet that the the love his love interest in this movie, the woman, like she is there for him. She wants to help him even though she's disgusted. Yeah. Like how could she not be? Yeah. Uh, but she still wants to be there for him and like support him through this period of transition. Right. And she just knows, like, there's nothing that I can do. He's got to figure this out on his own. Yeah. But he never does until well, he comes up with a solution, but it's not a humane solution. Yeah. Like, the only way that he can turn himself back into a human is by recombining with another human. Well, uh, getting a little ahead, but uh, yeah. So, right. He, he realized what he has to do is 
he has to combine here. What he thinks he has to do is combine the genome of Gina Davis's character, their unborn son or their, their unborn child, whatever. And like bring them all together into one body, mm-hmm. kind of like what ends up happening in, in curse of the fly, where you get that fleshy mess from multiple people being transported into one transporter. Yeah. But he, he was trying to com- program the computer to just make one person, not like a mess of a person, not a mess of a person, but it would be all of them mm-hmm. in one. Yes. Because in the fly two, the sequel to this, we find out some interesting things. So, any, well, anyway, yeah. So, so what, so what do you, what, what would you give this out of 10? For what it is? Yeah. I, I think it deserves a nine. Yeah. Out of 10. Yeah. No, I, I agree with you. I, I completely agree with you. I think it's a fantastic movie. There's, it's perfect. Um, there's, yeah. Yeah. It really goes the distance mm-hmm. in telling this story and it, it does not spare any detail. Right. And you feel every part of it. I mean, like the, the emotions are so deep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it, just, it, like, it, it just makes me quiver thinking about it. Yeah. And not, not in a good way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <sighs> but I, I don't like the ending. I think it's so sad. And that's part of it adds to the tragedy for me that the, the Gina Davis character ends up with her ex-boyfriend reporter guy, who is her boss. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that should not have happened. Yeah. I yeah. think the love story between Brundle and Gina Davis was so great. And it was a tragedy that their love was broken up by mm-hmm. this transformation. And mm-hmm. she ended up going back to her shitty ex. Right. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I hear that. Well, I think the fly two, which came out three years later. Um, I thought that, that it followed up very well with this movie. Um, and of course we know, we know what ultimately ends up happening is Gina Davis's character ends up dying during childbirth. Yeah. Like right at the beginning. So there's something I don't understand about that movie. Sure. Like how did they end up in this corporate environment, this laboratory environment? Well, so that's she's giving birth. So that's the company that, that Brundle that Jeff Goldblum's character is working for in the first movie. Right. And so that's kind of how, like they come in to the lab because they probably have to answer questions to the cops. Hey, what the fuck is going on in here? It's on your dime, you know, this company. And so I think that's how they end up there. And they probably, whatever happened, they probably, because the guy, the editor from the first movie, who's taking care of Gina Davis that she ends up back with, unfortunately, but he's like, he seems to think that they said they were going to take care of her, but they let her die. You know, like this corporation. Well, she died in childbirth because she gave birth to a mutant. Yeah. Yeah. Who seems very human at first. I don't understand why she allowed this pregnancy to go on because she was so adamant about getting an abortion. Yeah. So that's the part that really doesn't make sense because she makes it abundantly clear. She's not going to have this baby. That's just not going to happen. Uh, And I don't know if somehow Bartok Industries, which is the company, I don't know if somehow they like convinced her, whatever. That doesn't exactly make sense. Maybe they just didn't allow her to get the abortion. Right. I mean, based on all the other shit that they did, they could have easily just kept her there on the compound Mm -hmm. and not let her go because now she's a science experiment. Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately. And uh, well, anyway, this movie like deals with, the son, 
growing up and he grows up within this corporate environment. Like he's like a lab experiment himself. And he grows up at hyperspeed. Essentially yes. like at the age five of years. five, he looks like a 20 year old. Yeah, exactly. Played by Eric Stoltz, who does a great job in this. I think actually um, falls in love with a gal. In fact, this is one of the only other movies besides Spaceballs that has Daphne Zuniga in it, which I think is great. Um, you know, she played princess Vespa in, in Spaceballs. Uh, I, I really, I remember not being too, too hot about this movie when I first saw it. Granted, that was at least 20, 25 years ago. I thought this movie was great. I, I really, and it's another one where it, you know, what's amazing is, is that it also did a great job of, I think, being that a, a comic book film, basically, much like the original sequel to the original Fly was. I think it lived right up to that and played right off of that very nicely. Um because you're still rooting for the fly in this one. Exactly. Yeah. The fly is absolutely the hero in this. And, and it's really, really cool to have the monster be the good guy. Uh, and and it, it, I think this movie works really, really well. It's a simple story. It, there's no real surprises in it, but they do such a great job delivering. I don't know. I, I thought it was awesome. I, yeah. I, I really like this. It's not as good as the fly, but it's good. The corporation uh, is the evil yep. party. Yeah, classic, you know, 80s or, or late 80s theme. I mean, like, you know, that the corporation's evil. And it and really all this. tugs at your heartstrings. I mean, there's some parts of this movie that I think are so sweet and heartbreaking at the same time. Yes. Like, when this kid is young, he looks like he's five years old. He might mm-hmm. only be a few weeks old. We don't know. Yeah. Um, he... He ends up breaking into one of the labs where they store a bunch of animals. Oh, with the dog. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And he makes friends with a golden retriever there. Yeah. And they they end up sending this dog through the teleporter mm-hmm. and the dog comes out mangled. Right. Uh, and he's told that they put it out of its misery really quickly. Mm-hmm. But then he he ends up going to a party with this girl that he's falling in love with. Mm-hmm. And he sees this dog is still alive. They're still keeping it alive. And there are people joking about it. Yeah. And he's just, he's so disgusted and upset. Like, he, he ends up putting the dog out of its misery. Yeah. Um, and realizing that, like, he's been lied to his whole life. That It creates a chain of events. Yeah. Where he gets the reality of his, of his existence. Um, yeah. And he ends up, you know... For bearing reasons, he ends up like, and it's not, he doesn't have to go through the teleporter to become the fly. It's just his genetics that he ends up becoming the fly in this. Um, and he goes basically on a revenge you know, or on a path of vengeance, uh, you know, throughout, throughout it. Um, I think what, what I really like about it is because it's one, it also has a happy ending ultimately. And I, What's really interesting is that he finds a way by doing what his dad said he was going to do in the first movie. He, he basically, you find out that, that Brundle was right. If Brundle mixed in human DNA, uh, in the teleporter, like that, he could be cured of this because that's what ends up happening with this character, uh, with, with the hero in this movie. Yeah. He just needed a human sacrifice. Yeah, exactly. And Which course, he did get. He gets with a villain, and that, so, you know, people are like, okay, that's good, you know, <laughs> right? What crawls out of the other Oof. teleporter is yeah. not okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, this movie has a share of grossness as well. Like, it, it deals in that. 
Um, but but it's it does create commentary on the first film, which a lot of sequels don't always pull that off. And this one did. Uh, and, I, and I thought that 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 really worked. Um, it's it's a good movie. I'm not going to give it a nine. Like, yeah, this one a little bit lower, maybe like a seven point five or eight. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Seven or eight. That range. I, I would give it that. But this movie is not as well remembered, I think, as it should be. Um, which again speaks to the overall point I want to make about the franchise. I mean, is that these are all good movies. Yeah. You know, even though the third one doesn't make a whole ton of sense and gets a little uh, fast and loose with the continuity, I still think all of these movies, like, like this is a tremendous franchise uh, that, that has, if not great movies, perfect movies, even uh, within it that go ahead. Yeah, and I I also think it has enormous potential. Like it's yeah. it's clearly inspired a lot of modern day fiction. Um yeah. and and I think it it could really go places like if it was a comic book, for mm-hmm. example. Like this there's there's just so much to explore in this universe. Yeah, which IDW did make a comic book sequel to oh, The Fly okay. 2. Um so that's that's out there that people could check out. But I feel like this is something I mean, you could really go far with this, you know. Uh like replace kind of like what we were talking about earlier with uh, with the Galactic Federation or something, you know, until humans understand space and spaceships and everything. You know, let's have a science fiction franchise that relies more solely on teleporters than it does on spaceships at all. Like you don't need that. Star Trek's dalliance with that. In fact, there's an episode of Enterprise that whole cloth copied the Fly franchise. The one uh, um, with, oh shit, what was his name? Anyway, the one with the guy where he's developing the quantum transporter. Dr. Quinn. Yeah, yeah, Quinn. Right, exactly. Um, He's the guy that ended up inventing, like, you know, transporters for humans in the Star Trek universe. And he even gets his back fucked up, which is exactly what happens in Curse of the Fly. Like, they they, they just ripped it whole cloth, the whole story. Uh, And it it worked because it's a good story, you know, so so it fits in Star Trek. But, I, I mean, you could really go places with a franchise like this. You know, I mean, it's, it's kind of Stargate, Stargate-esque if you wanted to go far into the future. But I don't, I don't know. I'm just disappointed that nobody's wanted to pick up and run with this. Well, I, I understand why the teleporter technology mm. has continued on into the sci-fi world. Yeah. But the fly has not. Yeah. Because the fly is really a story about the pitfalls, the the failed experiments that led to the eventual successful teleporter technology and like all of the stages that it had to go through to be perfected. Yeah. Yeah. I, so it's really telling the backstory of like teleporter technology. Right. But the thing is, is that like it, because it has the, the cultural cachet of like having so much history, you know, from the first movie being out in 58 or whatever, it has the opportunity and the movies in, in a, in a kind of background way did, kind of what you were saying with the horror was of the first film where like, okay, like what's human and what's the fly. And there's a great possibility to explore what makes us human in the first place. You know, like with the first movie, you could have really gone far with, okay, so he has a fly head, but he's acting like Arthur, I think was his name. He's acting like Arthur. So he's like still human. So how much of the human mind is actually in the rest of the body that was still human and not fly. You know, like there, there's, there's so many places you could really explore the human condition with this, um, with these stories and under the auspices of where, yeah, wh- I mean, or you could even explore because look, the most unbelievable part of Star Trek is the transporter. 
you know, like that, that that's technology and it's unbelievable in the fly too, but it does it well. So you run with it, you know, because like, okay, well, is the person that appears in the other booth is, uh, is, is that the same person, you know, or is that like a copy? Like what, what, like those are things that this kind of franchise could explore that this technology could explore that I think are great questions that science fiction doesn't touch enough. Um, so again, that's why I say it's such a shame and you can even explore it within the movies themselves. Uh, it's such a shame that it doesn't get as much credit uh, as, as any of these other major franchises do. Yeah. Yeah. And it's really interesting too, that like in the fly with the, with Jeff Goldblum, mm-hmm. uh, he talks about how the computer needs to be creative and reinterpret the, the matter that it's uh, processing. Right. It doesn't understand the flesh. Right. Yeah. Exactly. The poetry of the flesh. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And he has to teach it how to to get excited about the flesh, like a grandma pinching the cheeks of the baby. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's what I'm saying is that like, there, there's, there's so many like philosophical roads you could go down with this and, and just no, you know, it's just sitting there waiting for somebody to pick it up. And, well, I don't know if it'll ever happen, but uh, yeah, I love this franchise. I mean, what, what do you have to say? Do you, do you agree with my statement that it should be considered one of the major science fiction franchises? Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, even after the first two or three movies, I was ready to say that. But yeah, yeah. I, I feel like it's it's such an awesome series of films. I can't believe that, like, I I don't know that I've ever heard anybody really talk about these. Right. Yes. That's why we're talking about them now. Yeah. Because. So get out there and watch these movies. Yeah. Damn right. So anyway, uh, yeah, I mean, again, this should be just, this really should be one of the major franchises. It needs to get revisited a lot. I thank shout factory for putting the, the a gorgeous box set out there for people to get their hands on. Do so folks. Um, they're not a sponsor, but if they ever wanted to, I'd let them. Um, anyway, so we, I think we need to eat. Do we, do we have any of that lab grown stuff downstairs? <laughs> oh, we don't need to eat. Oh, <laughs> we can survive indefinitely without food. We're evolving. We're breatharians now? No. No, <laughs> no we're not going that no, crazy. No, we're understanding space and time. Oh, right. Right. We can think the food. Yes. No. <laughs> right. Anyway, that is it uh, for this episode of Sovereign Tech. Ellen is always tons of fun. You uh, you really, boy, you talk about drawing stuff out of me. Yikes. Uh, I'm feeling a little vulnerable after this episode. I love it. <laughs> and if you love it. Please request that I be on the show more often because Brian only lets me out of the basement twice a month. <laughs> oh, are you kidding me? You love it when you're shackled up. Don't give me that. <laughs> Go get your collar on. No, no. <laughs> Woo, that's it for this episode. We got to stop. This thing's getting hot in here. And, uh, we yeah, will... I do think that we, we need to go eat. <laughs> yeah, we do. All right. Merry calendar, everybody. Merry we... calendar. Woo, we will see all of you on the other side. Thank you for listening to Sovereign Tech, an Osiris One production. Now go out there and make some trouble. No zoonoids were harmed in the making of this podcast.